strike and waiting. The outfield beaten straight away. Fastball is a high fly to the deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the Deep South for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. The legendary Vin Scully calling the home run that would define the career of the late Henry Aaron, who passed away yesterday at the age of 86. This morning, we lost Larry King. Two icons in two days. 2021, you're not off to the greatest start. My name is Joey Vendetta. This is the Joey Vendetta Show. We're going to get into it today on multiple levels, on multiple sporting topics, and some topics about humanity. You don't really get the credit you deserve in your life until after you're gone. I find that incredibly ironic, and I'll get into why in just a second. Hopefully we'll get Frank Trigg, UFC Hall of Famer, stuntman and MMA judge on in hour number three to preview tonight's Poirier versus McGregor long-time brewing should-be-a-title-fight rematch. Brian Lawton, NHL Network analyst, will join us. We'll talk Canadian division, NHL Friday night recap, and, of course, the massive trade that was just consummated between the Columbus Blue Jackets and the Winnipeg Jets. Pierre-Luc Dubois will not be benched anymore by John Tortorella. But Patrick Laine might be. They've swapped places along with other pieces, which we'll discuss in depth with Brian. Glenn Grunwald, president and CEO of Canada Basketball, will join us in hour number two. A fascinating story on sanctions being levied towards the Canadian basketball program, and it was a significant amount of money. We'll talk to Glenn and how he feels about that and get his thoughts also on the one-year anniversary of the passing of Kobe Bryant and all the other people that lost their lives just a year ago. It seems like it's been 10 years. It seems like it's been 10 minutes. Trey Wingle will join us as well in hour number two at the top to talk NFL. It is wild card weekend no more. It is now championship weekend. Bills and Chiefs, the late game on Sunday. Bucks and the Packs around 2 Eastern. There are so many storylines. Brady, Rodgers, Mahomes, and the young Josh in Buffalo. The young guns and the old guard. 
And speaking of the old guard, Breeze and Rivers calling it a career. And the young guard, Dwayne Haskins, cast aside by the Washington football team, getting a second chance with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Sarah Nurse will join us this hour at the bottom of the hour. We'll talk about the Good Deeds Cup, Chevy Good Deeds Cup, which I think is a great program, which has brought so much happiness to the kids that are involved in it and the people that benefit from it. And we'll also talk to Sarah about winning Olympic medals with Team Canada and the NWHL bubble that's getting underway. Get her thoughts on that. Tim Kirchin is going to join us in a few minutes here to talk about Hank Aaron and also the Blue Jays, of course, earlier in the week. It was a it was mayhemic. I haven't used that word in years. Absolutely mayhemic. What happened when Springer signed? I was the second guy in the story. And I'm generally not a story breaker. But I got tipped from somebody that I know that it was going to happen. The same person that tipped me on Brantley being done. So I got a text from some guy, Donald and Don Mills. Well, Joey Vendetta's on. Time to change the channel. I wonder if he has any more trade confirmations that are wrong. What have you confirmed, Donald? Exactly. So the Brantley deal was done, and then he changed his mind. And by the way, Donald, everyone else got it wrong too. Have fun in your car, pal. So Springer was right, which is what really matters ultimately. And the Jays are going to be in on a bunch more players. So I want to ask you on the text line at 590-590. How do you feel about the moves the Blue Jays have made now? Whether you're listening in Vancouver or Calgary or Ottawa, Toronto, anywhere else in the country or around the world online. I want to know what you think. If the Blue Jays, who now have Springer in center field, they picked up Kirby Yates, Tyler Chatwood, Robbie Ray. And they've definitely been in on every player, including Michael Brantley, who they verbally agreed to a three-year deal with, who changed his mind. People are allowed to change their mind. And the entire baseball world pretty much was saying that it was a done deal. And then it didn't happen. Have you ever changed your mind? Yeah, it's your prerogative. Are you happy with what the Jays have done? And maybe you have a Hank Aaron memory that you want to share. Or a Larry King memory you want to share. Or maybe you want to tell me who won the trade between Line A and Dubois. Did Columbus win it? Or did... The Winnipeg Jets win. They're deep at center now. That's for sure. David and Waterdown. Rest in peace, Mr. Aaron. Who won the Line A for Dubois trade? I kind of like Patrick Line A in this situation. Although, it's going to be interesting to see who he plays with in Columbus. Is he going to play with Max Domi? Is there enough puck to go around? I'm looking forward to watching it, that's for sure. 
Line A and Tortorella, if the NHL ever wanted to shoot a documentary, that that would be it. Patrick Patrick Line and John Tortorella. That will be a lot of fun to watch. It's my pleasure now to welcome to the program a man who has been doing this for a very long time, has done incredible work over his career. His ability to tell a story, to convey information, is second to none when it comes to Major League Baseball. It is our pleasure to welcome to the program Tim Kirchin, MLB writer and analyst for ESPN, at Kirchin underscore ESPN on Twitter. Tim, thanks a lot for doing this today. How are you? Uh, I'm fine. Thank you. Yesterday was a very, very difficult day for me and so many others, but uh, we've had a lot of those difficult days the last 11 months or so. But yesterday hurt as much as any, given the loss of Hank Air. But otherwise, I'm doing okay. And that leads me into the first question. Henry Aaron, someone, and I said this off the top before you joined us, people don't appreciate people, for the most part, in the manner that they do after they're gone. The tributes, the plaudits, the tears, the memories, they all come rolling in after the person is gone. And we played the Vin Scully clip off the top where he called the home run that overtook the babe. And I don't think people understand what Hank Aaron, especially younger people, I understand it, you understand it, but I want you as someone who's very eloquent and has done this for a long time and, of course, had a relationship with the man, uh, a close relationship with him, and someone who worked with him. I, I have to ask you to put it in perspective what Henry Aaron did for black people, for what he did for that race, what he endured, what he went through, and and how much those made those things made his achievements that much more incredible. Well, after Jackie Robinson, you could certainly make the case that Hank Aaron was the most influential baseball player ever when it came to civil rights. Jackie Robinson was clearly the leader, but with what Hank Aaron went through during the chase of Babe Ruth, the hate, the racism that he dealt with, was just unconscionable what that man went through. Dusty Baker told me he was a teammate of Hank's and loved Hank like his own father. Said, I read some of those letters, and it was it was just the most awful thing I've ever seen. And it affected Hank Aaron. And yet, in retirement and any other any time I've ever talked to him about anything, that seems to come up, and there's no bitterness from him. Surely he will never forget what he went through and hated every second of that. But to not harbor any bitterness after all these years was it just spoke directly to how great Hank Aaron was and how revered he was from so many people in the game, black and white. And on my own tiny little level, the greatest 
day of my professional career was when Hank Aaron did a few innings in our booth during a game in Atlanta in 2018, Dave Fleming, Eduardo Perez, and myself. And he was so funny. He was so gentle. He was he was so good. He told so many great stories. And I, I stopped keeping score of a game I was covering. I've never done that before or after because I didn't care about the game anymore. I was sitting next to Hank Aaron. I was completely enthralled with everything that he said. So after the game was over, I went to Twitter, which is usually not a good idea. And mm-hmm. someone had written on Twitter. He wrote, if you ever meet anyone who looks at you like Tim Kirchin looked at Hank Aaron tonight, you should marry that person. That's how – that's the reverence that I showed to Hank Aaron because that's the reverence that everyone showed to him of anyone who got any appreciable time around him. He was – just an amazing man and obviously a great, great player. Tim, there are two numbers that are inextricably linked with Hank Aaron and outside of the number that he wore, 44, but two statistical numbers in 714 and 755. But there are parts of his career that I've always thought didn't get much play. And I think the first one was the fact that he was the home run king and he was also a former Negro League player and broke it amongst incredible racism, as you said, the letters that Dusty Baker described to you. But he was the last player to play in the majors that was a a Negro League player. And I've always wondered... About And we know Major League Baseball is recognizing the, the Negro Leagues now, but when you look at his statistics, why is it that those two numbers overshadow, I could go on and we won't have time to do it, but I'm just going to say the, the 21 you know, seasons all-star, the 25 all-star nods because of multiple games in some seasons, you know, the, the 20 home runs a year for 20 years, I can go on and on, but why is it that those two numbers that I quoted off the beginning are the ones that really, really define his career for most people? Well, because baseball, this is one of its great beauties, uh, really relishes and reveres the great numbers. And 714 and then 715 uh, is perhaps the biggest number in sports. It's even bigger than 61 that, that Babe Ruth turned to Roger Maris. Um, and that's why it was so important because our numbers matter so much. But his numbers were so enormous that I don't think he ever gets credit for, of course, having the most RBIs, most total bases, most extra base hits. He made more all-star teams than anyone. He's the first player ever to have 40 homers, 30 stolen bases in a season. And also, of course, if you took away all 755 of his home runs, just took them away, he'd still have 3,000 hits. That's the point with Hank Aaron is he wasn't just some big power hitter who hit the ball out of the ballpark. He was a complete player. He won an MVP at 23. He got an MVP vote in 19 of his 23 seasons. That's unheard of 
in baseball history. That's how important Hank Aaron was with his numbers, but this is the beauty of baseball. You just ask anyone what 714 means, and they can answer it. But you ask somebody, you know, what 61,361 means, that was Dan Marino's passing record at one point since past i i got asked how many yards did dan marino throw for i missed by fifteen thousand. now i'm not a football guy but nobody knows those numbers like they know these great numbers in baseball and that's what separates baseball and again you can make a case 714 is the biggest number in the history of baseball tim look we don't know what it's like to grow up in a situation where you have to fear for your life because of the color of your skin. And it's been well documented over the last year. It's been documented before, but it's really come to the front of the conversation in the last year. And I want to phrase this properly. In modern society, at least you have recourse and you have the ability to videotape the situation and we've seen what that's done, right? When you when the phone's there and the video shows up and then you see what actually really happened. But for a guy that was born in in Mobile, Alabama and grew up poor, seven siblings, and was subjected to the things that he was subjected, I think we don't put it in the proper context. And I don't want to belabor the point, but what did Hank Aaron mean to the black athletic community. Again, you're not black, I'm not black, but try to summarize it from your experience and meeting him and and knowing him. Well, again, he was a civil rights activist and he did as much for the game as any black player ever other than Jackie Robinson. But typical of Hank Aaron, he gives all of that credit to Jackie Robinson. He told me that night he did the game. He said, look, if it weren't for Jackie Robinson, I don't think I would have ever played in the major leagues. But the fact that he did play, played that well, played in the deep South, and then amid all that hate and racism, broke a record held by the most iconic player potentially in the history of the game and carried himself the way he did through it all. That did as much as anything for civil rights in this country because everyone looked and said, look at Hank Aaron. Look how he has conducted himself. Look how dignified he has been through all of this hate. That's what started to turn, help turn uh, this country towards a better look at civil rights. Last thing on Hank Aaron, then I want to talk to you about some of the moves that happened with the Blue Jays. We have a ton of Blue Jay fans listening, but last thing on Hank Aaron, what what is Hank Aaron going to be remembered for, if you could summarize it in a few words? Well, he's going to be remembered for being one of the five greatest players of all time and a guy who, again, conducted himself in a way that very, very few have given everything that he went through. And I've never met anyone in my life who didn't revere Hank Aaron like I do. I I told the story yesterday. My friend Aaron Boone, who knows everyone in baseball, 
his dad and his grandfather played in the big leagues. He grew up in a major league ballpark. He isn't in awe of anyone. During the 2014 All-Star Game, Booney came up to me and said, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. I saw Hank Aaron in the elevator. And I said, Booney, what did you say to him? He goes, I didn't say anything. I was too afraid to talk to him. I said, why? Because he's Hank Aaron. And that kind of sums it up. That's how revered he was to everyone around him, especially the people who played the game. Thank you very much for those memories. Very well put, very succinct and and heartfelt. We appreciate them greatly. Now I want to ask you about the Blue Jays. And it was insane this week in Canada. And Blue Jay Nation went bananas. And I there was a kid who... I won't call him. He's younger than anybody's a kid to me right now, Tim, at my age. But anyway, this a, a younger gentleman who reported the story. And then I I actually retweeted it and said it's a done deal because I heard from someone that I know that Springer was coming to Toronto. And then all heck broke loose, as the polite people say. And it was true. Pending a physical, he was signed. And then I heard from the same person that the Jays were going to get Brantley. And then people started confirming that on a three-year deal. And from what I understand, they had a verbal, and then Houston came back with more money, and I think his family decided, hey, we just want to stay in Houston. But let's talk about what the signing of George Springer means for the Toronto Blue Jays, not on the field, but as a franchise, perceptually, amongst other teams, agents, and the baseball world. How did it strike you when it happened? Well, it really put the Blue Jays in a different category as far as being a big market team and a a destination for a lot of people on a different level. The years ago, the Nationals gave Jason Wirth an enormous amount of money, and he probably didn't deserve that much. They clearly overpaid, but they did it to show everyone, all right, we're serious, we're in the big leagues, and because of that, others – followed. So now you get George Springer with this unbelievable postseason record that he has. Uh, An athletic body that is, from everyone I've ever talked to, can only be described as freakish. That kind of combination of speed and power. You put that at the top of the order for a team that made the playoffs last year with so many good young players on the team. I think you look around now and say, all right, the Jays are real players again. This is the early 90s again. This is Roberto Alomar. This is Paul Molitor. This is Jack Morris. This is all the Blue Jays putting that club together. They're a player again. That's what George Springer does to me. Now, they've got work to do. Kirby Yates is really going to help. Those young guys have to get better. They still have some work to do in their rotation, but... One guy can often change the look of a team because now the other free agents go, well, George went there. That team is serious. So maybe the next free agent or the next trade also goes to the Jays. I I think just making that statement is absolutely imperative, especially when you're in the same division with the New York Yankees. Our guest is Tim Kirkjian, the outstanding personality and writer for ESPN and analyst at Kirkjian underscore ESPN. Tim, talk about the 
you said the perception and that the Jays are now looked at. I'll, I'll throw them that they're now in the heavyweight category in terms of their willingness to spend and they're serious. So we know who the heavyweights generally are. It's the Dodgers. It's the Yankees. And and it's the Mets to a degree now. And it, it has been the Cubs. And and there are teams that, that make it to the World Series like Tampa because they do it a different way. Their player development's outstanding. Their their scouting is outstanding. And you've got to give credit to the Jays as well. They've developed their prospects incredibly well, and they have more. But as far as this offseason goes, we've seen, because of the current fiscal situation in the sport and the world in general, there are only a few teams that have money. How much How much of an advantage has that been for Toronto that they've made it be known we've got money we're open for business and we're looking at everybody well that's been critical on a different level that's what the Mets have been able to do with the new owner who didn't lose any money last year in a year when so many teams lost money but this is this is where the Blue Jays have a distinct advantage is not only do they have money they are willing to spend it and are making it clear that they will because the window is open now, and they have opened it up and pushed through it, which is something they had to do. We heard this was going to happen, and then not a whole lot of movement. And I know people in the industry were going, well, when are the Blue Jays going to make their big move? Well, they did now. They made two of them, led by George Springer, of course. So having money and then being willing to spend it is absolutely critical. And you can talk about small market teams, Oakland and Tampa Bay and how they win and it's amazing and it is but eventually if you're if you're going to win long term you're going to have to go out and get key players and that's what the Jays have done led by George Spring. Last question before we let you go what are you hearing about the remaining names that are out there and potential trade scenarios are there any obvious or logicals I mean Trevor Trevor Bauer we haven't heard where he's going yet and Jays fans would love to have him, as would any other team. But you're hearing names like Didi Gregorius, James Paxton, a bunch of other ones. Is there anything you're hearing that you could share with us? Well, it's still a very tricky time. I'm not certain of anything because nobody's certain of anything in these crazy COVID days, especially with baseball turned upside down. But I think JT Real Muto, I think, is going to end up going back to the Phillies. Because if they want to be any good, they're going to have to re-sign him. But Trevor Bauer, to me, is the key now because everyone needs a starting pitcher. He won the Cy Young last year. He's going to get better from here. He's wildly competitive, and he is fearless. And he's going to sign, I'm not sure with whom, but my guess is it's going to be the Mets or it's going to be the Angels. I don't think it's going to be the Blue Jays. And I think a lot of other teams out there are interested, but a lot will depend on what he demands. Does he want to just do a one-year deal, break the yearly AAV that, you know, Gary Cole holds for a pitcher and just sign for one year or maybe two, or does he want to go for five or six? All these questions still need to be answered, but we're going to know an awful lot about where this baseball season is going, depending on where Trevor Bauer goes. So it's time to make a decision. That's the way I look at it. It's time to keep keep this train moving because spring training, if we start on time, is only about three weeks away. Tim, thanks again for doing this. We appreciate your time, especially on a Saturday. Take care of yourself. Stay safe, and we look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Tim Kirkchen, ESPN.
always fantastic. We're going to take the break, and speaking of fantastic, she's won Olympic medals, and she's going to help you do a good deed and maybe get rewarded for it when we return. It's the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the Joey Vendetta Show here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. It is my pleasure to be with you here on this Saturday, January the 23rd. And it's our pleasure to welcome to the program now Sarah Nurse, Olympic medalist with Team Canada at Nursey 16. I've seen her on television. I love what she does. And I love the program that she is helping to promote the Chevrolet Good Deeds Cup, which I think has been one of the outstanding initiatives in the corporate world and has helped so many people. And I love seeing the kids do things off the ice to make things matter. Sarah, thanks a lot for doing this. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for that intro. Wow, thank you. <laughs> of course. It's my, it's my pleasure. Before we get to the Good Deeds Cup, it's the timing is kind of fortuitous because the NWHL season's getting underway, and it's going to be a single elimination tournament, and it's going to be shown on, on NBC. SN, so their sports network, which they've oddly enough just announced is going to be going away soon. So the timing's kind of interesting. But I want to get your perspective on, you know, we know that women's hockey's had its its share of trials and tribulations, right? With the with the the PWHL and the PWHA, I mean, and the and the NWHL. Like just kind of put it in perspective and explain what's happened and where we are now. Yeah, I definitely think that women's hockey is at um, an interesting place um, for sure. I think over the last few years, um, we've seen a surge in interest in women's hockey and exposure and a lot more visibility, uh, more than we've ever had before. But um, we're definitely looking for more in the future. And so I think as as we've gotten this exposure and this visibility, um, we brought in light to certain aspects of quote-unquote professional women's hockey um, that, uh, that the average person who doesn't follow women's hockey wouldn't really know about. And I think that that's been super important and something that the PWHPA, um, we really want to get across because a lot of people think things are okay and they, they, they see us play at the Olympics and they see us play at the World Championships and they're like, wow, this is awesome. Like, why can't I watch you guys throughout the season? And so we're just bringing light to, to certain issues around professional women's hockey and um, are hoping in the future that we can really push to create a league that little girls can dream of playing in. And why isn't there just one big league? I know that kind of might be a dumb question, but I don't honestly know. I've asked a lot of friends. I think we have a friend in common in Brant Feldman who lives in Los Angeles and is a huge proponent of women's hockey. And I've talked to mm-hmm. him at length about this. But I'm curious what your perspective is on why isn't there just one big women's hockey league with all the best players in it that is given support by the NHL? Absolutely. I think that's definitely everybody's goal. I think you look historically and um, when when women's hockey leagues are, you know, may not be run or women's sports leagues in general um, are attached to or have some sort of affiliation with um, their their male counterpart, it it ends up working. And so we're on the track to get one women's professional hockey league and, and in the past with different leagues popping up um, has definitely caused um, a, a bit of a, like a, a little tryst, I guess you'd, I guess you'd say, but 
um, we're all trying to get on the same page So because we all have the same goals at the end of the day, and, and we all want to see women's hockey reach new heights. And so um, I definitely see one professional women's hockey league coming in the future. Tell me about some of the adversity and some of the obstacles you've faced in your career, not just because you're a woman, but because of your color. And we're mm-hmm. celebrating Hank Aaron today, who passed away yesterday, as you know, and I had Tim Kirchin on from ESPN, and we were talking about what Hank had to go through, and he had to go through it for a long period of time at a different time. It was a long time ago, which I can't even imagine the hell that guy had to go through, but he always had a smile on his face. He always carried himself with dignity. Never heard a word about it. I I never heard him say a word about how he was treated. But as someone that's Mm -hmm. grown up playing sports and become a professional athlete and reached the peak of your career and achieving your goals, I want to ask you from your perspective, what are some of the things that you've had to go through? I think it's interesting because you, you think of those athletes and the personalities of the past and, what they've had to go through. And of course you, you'd never hear anything of that about it because honestly, like it was hard to speak up way back then. And I can only imagine the things that other athletes from different generations have had to go through because it wasn't okay to, to, to speak up, which is very unfortunate. And they faced every day with grace and a smile and were absolutely incredible and definitely people that I look to. And I think in my experiences, um, but the hockey community, it's not always been a welcoming and, and friendly place. You know, when whenever my family walked into a hockey arena, I know that heads turned. Um, we were like the black family in hockey. Um, and so it was, it was definitely kind of a hurdle to hop. I know there are times when me or my brothers were playing and, and my grandfather on my mom's side, who was, uh, you know, a white man, um, he would hear people talking about me or my brothers, um, whether it was talking about my brothers being little black kids on the ice or me being that girl on the ice. And so um, my family's definitely experienced uh, our fair share of different racism and um, myself sexism. And so I think bringing light to these issues, we're just hoping that the next generation and every generation to come doesn't have to go through these things. And um, we can make sports in general a more inclusive, inclusive space. Did it ever make you want to quit? Definitely. I think there were times where it was like, man, is this really worth it? Um, and I think those times came, you know, after the game was over. And because I, I love being on the ice and that was always my happy place. That's what made me the happiest. That's where I was able to shine. Um, and so while I was on the ice, like really nothing could stop me. But it was those moments after the game or in the locker room or in the main lobby of the arena that were like, man, <laughs> this kind of sucks today. Uh, do I really want to keep doing it? But I mean, for me, it was it was the love of the game. And and honestly, like me playing hockey and, and excelling at it, like it was kind of my ticket to getting an education and um, really broadening my horizons. So I definitely stuck with it through that. Let's talk about the Good Deeds Cup. And again, our guest is Sarah Nurse, Olympic medalist with Team Canada at Nursey16 on Twitter. And of course, enjoying an outstanding career as a professional athlete. And the Good Deeds Cup always struck me as something whenever I'd see the commercials, it made me feel good. It made me smile. It made me happy to see that somebody was focusing on things off the ice and somebody was focusing on things to help others. Cause really at the end of the day, that's our legacy, right? Hank Aaron's remembered because 
He he broke Babe Ruth's home run record. He was an incredible baseball player. But I think Hank Aaron is going to be remembered more for what he did for black people in terms of moving the race forward and the acceptance as as athletes and as people. And when I look at the the Chevy Good Deeds Cup and I see those commercials of the kids and then they show them in a community center with someone that looks like that they're struggling and they and they look like they need help. And I mean, I don't I'm not inside that person's brain, but you can see from the outside that they're they're gratified by these young children who were helping them. And Mm -hmm. I just want to ask you, tell us about the fact that this year is tough to actually go do that because we can't be with people right now. And especially for children, that's incredibly difficult, but there is a way to get involved. You can pitch your good ideas now and still make a difference. Yeah. I think the interesting about the Chevrolet Good Deeds Cup is just the fact that it's showing young hockey players that they are more than hockey players and, and what they bring transcends their sport. Um, the values that you learn on the ice um, with your teammates, you know, hard work, leadership, dedication, those are transferable skills off of the ice. And so giving back and helping your communities is, is such a huge part of hockey, especially in Canada. Like we're so focused on that. And so the fact that they can do that is absolutely incredible. I think this year, obviously, with it being so different, um, with us being a pandemic, um, following local health and safety guidelines is very important because we want everybody to stay safe and healthy. But it's definitely been difficult because I know that kids want to get out there with their teammates in their communities and, and doing good and playing games and competing. But unfortunately, we can't do that. So by pitching their idea, um, they still have the chance to win the Good Deeds Cup, that big trophy, and they also have the chance to get $100,000 for the community and the cause of their choice um, so that that good deed can be put into action um, when health and safety guidelines permit it to. Yeah. And the submissions are now open until January the 28th. And if you want to get involved and put forth a submission, you just go to chevrolet.ca and just type in good deeds cup and it'll come up. But what you're doing is you're pitching good ideas that will have a significant impact in your community. And every team that participates has the chance to become this year's champion and win a $100,000 donation to the registered charity of their choice. And in addition to every team having the chance to become a champion, Chevrolet will reward every idea submitted by donating $50 to the Hockey Canada Foundation Assist Fund up to $75,000, which will provide access to kids in need uh, to the game, right? So that they can have access to play hockey. Because, you know, one of the things about hockey that we've discussed, and there's a reason why why soccer is the most popular sport in the world, the barrier to entry is much lower in soccer than it is to hockey. You don't need skates. You don't need a stick. You don't need a helmet. You don't have to rent ice. And that's kind of been one of the concerns for people that are that are hockey supporters is that, it has been harder and harder for parents to put their kids in hockey because it's, it's, it's not cheap, right? Absolutely. I think that, you know, I'm seeing this now with with the lockdown and where I'm at. Um, Sometimes I'm like, man, I want to get on the ice. Like how can I get on the ice? And I'm, you know, I'm a professional hockey player. I'm an Olympian. And so I think that as, as you look at hockey and the barriers to entry, um, it's, it's kind of crucial to diminish those barriers. So I know that when we introduce kids to hockey now, um, 
there are different ways to introduce them to hockey. Like it's not always about ice hockey. Like there's floor hockey, there's ball hockey, and that kind of spurs the love of the game. And then once you get kids on skates, like it's it's game over from there because they just take off and they love it. And so I know that there are a lot of barriers to hockey that the Hockey Canada Foundation is definitely looking to diminish. Sarah, thanks a lot for your time. We wish you nothing but the best in the future. And congratulations on your involvement with the Good Deeds Cup. It's a fantastic cause and all the best to you and your family going forward. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. That is Sarah Nurse here on the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. We're going to take a break. And if you're listening on Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver, Sportsnet 960 in Calgary, 101 City News in Ottawa, or of course, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I want your opinions, your thoughts on the George Springer signing and what you think of the Blue Jays' chances. And are you, as a Jays fan, excited for this upcoming season? And what else do they need to do? You're the general manager. The budget's unlimited. What else can they do? Or you can... Tell me who won the big trade. Pierre-Luc Dubois for Patrick Laine. There are other pieces, but those are the main headlines. Who won that trade? Laine and Jack Roslovich headed to the Blue Jackets. He said, Jack said he wasn't going to play for Winnipeg ever again. And Laine kind of said, I'm not going to play for you after this season. And who said that the NHL players aren't acting kind of like NBA players? Text us. Let me know who won that trade. Let me know what you think of the Jays. And, of course, the phone lines are open. Happy to put you on the radio if you have a contribution to make. The phone numbers, of course, 416 590 star 590 on your cell. Text us at 590-590. I'll read them and reply to them. Include your name and where you're texting from. Look forward to getting you on the air and getting to your text next here on the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Still to come on the program, we'll preview UFC 257 tonight. Poirier McGregor in hour number three. Brian Lawton will join us. NHL Network analyst and, of course, the first American ever taken first overall in the National Hockey League draft. Glenn Grunwald will join us as well to discuss... Canada was fine. I call it extortion. Let's not mince words here. They just want the cash. FIBA, which I rate right up there with the Cosa Nostra. I don't know if you guys ever watch mafia movies, but do the research and you'll understand what I'm talking about. And of course, we're going to discuss this massive trade in the National Hockey League, seismic in its scope, the Columbus Blue Jackets and Winnipeg Jets have completed a massive trade this morning. Pierre-Luc Dubois and a third-round pick being sent to the Jets in return for line A. Jack Roslovich heading back to the Blue Jackets. You know what's transpired with John Tortorella, Mr. Happy. Pierre, not happy. And now he's in Winnipeg, where perhaps he'll be happier. Their depth down the middle just got exponentially better. Shifley, Stastny, Dubois. That's a pretty strong middle. They may have vaulted up in the North Division. 
in the NHL. We're going to get to some of your texts right now. 590-590. And as well, we're going to get to Trey Wingo at the top of the hour to preview the AFC and NFC championships, along with a bunch of other topics. Troy in Grimsby. Talking about the Blue Jays. The lineup is set. Still a lot to prove. However, I'm confident these players will take large leaps forward this year. Clearly, starting pitching is the issue. Let's get to, let's see. Someone's talking about beer. Andy is Jim from Oshawa. Winnipeg got the better of the deal. Dubois is no whiny-ass player. He works damn hard. Not like the other pansy headed to Columbus. Now back to my beer. What kind of beer is it? Is it a Bud? At least let us know what kind of beer you're drinking. Phil in Calgary. PLD won the trade. Pierre-Luc Dubois won the trade because he got away from torts. The two teams have essentially got two disgruntled players who have little loyalty to them while being paid millions of dollars. Neither will be where they landed very long. Great the Jays got Springer. It's like the mid-90s when they were a destination of choice. I agree with that. 100% that Toronto has completely changed the perception of their team when it comes to the rest of Major League Baseball. Anthony from Woodbridge, I think they should go after Odorizzi, re-sign Walker, and the rotation should be set. Yeah, you got to hope that Nate Pearson pans out, really. That, that, to me, is the key. If Nate Pearson can be the Nate Pearson we expect, huge game changer. All of a sudden, you've got two real starters, and then you can figure out the rest. Although, I still want Trevor Brower, period. End of story. Let's see. Stevie in Parkdale. Joe, too many questions marks in the starting rotation. Need to shore that up. Love what Columbus gets. We're going to take the break and come back and talk NFL and get into this huge trade between Columbus and Winnipeg when we come back on the Joey Vendetta Show here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. It's hour number two. It's the Joey Vendetta Show here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Thank you for listening. Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, Ottawa, and anywhere else you may be enjoying the program. The headlines, Hank Aaron passing away yesterday at 86. Of course, Larry King passing away today at 87. The Toronto Blue Jays officially confirmed the George Springer deal. Six years at $150 million. Massive trade in the NHL. Pierre-Luc Dubois, Patrick Laine swapping places and we'll be joined by Jamie Thomas, Jets radio analyst in about 20 minutes from now. But just as important, if you like to wager, perhaps, or even if you don't and you just like to enjoy, the National Football League Championship Weekend is here. Bucks pack, followed by Bills and the Chiefs. And as always, it is our distinct pleasure to welcome to the program a man who has forgotten more about football than I'll probably Ever know. His birth certificate may say Hal Wingo the third. We call him Trey. And of course, he hosts an incredible podcast, video podcast that you definitely should check out. It is called Half Forgotten History at Wingo Z on Twitter. 
And congratulations, Trey, on the new job calling golf for PGA Tour Live. Welcome to the program. Oh, Joey, how are you? What a great introduction, man. Thank you. It's always good to be with you. And uh, you're right, there's a lot going on. So I'm happy to, to chop it up with you. My man, tell me about the job with PGA Tour Live, if you can, if you can shed some light on that. Sure. Uh, you know, for seven years at ESPN, I was a part of our coverage of the U.S. Open and Open Championship uh, golf coverage. So uh, they called about a month ago and said, hey, would you like to start calling some golf for us? And I said, absolutely. So starting next week, I'll be down calling the first two rounds for PGA Tour Live of the Farmers Championship at Torrey Pines, doing their featured group analysis Thursday and Friday. Um, we had thought we might have Tiger Woods back, but obviously his back had other ideas. So hopefully a speedy recovery for him. But I'm excited about it. I love golf. I love the game. And I'm looking forward to getting back into calling live action. And I look forward to texting you and saying, can you come on and talk about golf now? Because I'll bother you about that. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it. Hey, before we talk NFL, what did you think of the Tiger Woods documentary? I watched it, and I had – a little bit of a closer perspective because when he was having the dalliance with Rachel Yucatel, uh, a friend of mine was actually having a dalliance with her at the same time. So I was kind of privy to some internal texts and emails from Tiger to Rachel. So I kind of saw a little bit of the madness that was going on. But, I mean, I liked it because it just really showed at the end of the day, the guy's a human being like the rest of us. And to me... When Tiger was a robot, I never liked Tiger when he was a robot. When Tiger fell and became a human, I became, I, I love Tiger Woods now. I love him because he's yeah. a human like the rest of us. W what did you think of the documentary? Well, first of all, let me just say this. You can tell the plastic surgery sometimes is not a great idea. Second. No. Terrible. Uh, I, I would say that, like, I read the book, and obviously I follow Tiger's story very closely. So there wasn't a lot new to me, but I think – what the documentary did a very good job of was showing basically that this, I'm going to use the word kid because he's you know, 10, 12 years younger than I am. When, when he was growing up, his life was preordained for him and predestined for him. And obviously it's worked out because he's, in my mind, the greatest golfer to ever play. But when you have parents, and I say parents plural because obviously his dad was very, commandeering but his mom was also very strict and when they plot out your entire life for you eventually you're going to rebel um i'll give you an example in, in another sport uh, zeke elliott the dallas cowboys running back you know he's from st louis his father played football at the university of missouri everyone thought he was going to go to the university of missouri instead he went to ohio state his dad then moved to ohio state in columbus and took up an apartment off campus just to sort of be around him more and when he was going through the draft process in 2016, his dad was with him every step of the way. And finally, when Zeke got away on his own a little bit, he ran a foul and got into some trouble because for the first time in his life, he was like, I don't have someone lording over me all the time. And I thought the documentary made Tiger a much more sympathetic figure. Uh, I'm not excusing anything that happened, and I don't think Tiger would want to excuse anything that happened. But it shows you that you have to give kids room to breathe. And, and I think, while you know, the indoctrinization into golf has made him successful and wealthy beyond anyone's wild imagination, 
the complete overbearingness of it, I think, also had ramifications. Very well put, as it usually is with you. NFL, it is... I can't remember a time, and you know a heck of a lot more than I do about the National Football League, but I cannot remember a time where on championship weekend you had the marquee value of the quarterbacks that are going to be playing tomorrow and the storylines of the old guard and the new guard. Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, Battle of the Bays, and then Mahomes and Josh Allen, two guys. And, and you know, I know that you're the... I won't say the president of the Patrick Mahomes for the Hall of Fame fan club, but you've made no secret about your admiration for Mahomes and what an incredible player he is. And a huge relief yeah. to Kansas City that that he was off the list and there's no conditions on his playing and he's okay. But there's been some scuttlebutt lately that maybe Josh Allen is get, pulling upside to Patrick Mahomes in ability. And I know that might be blasphemy to you, but these are two great storylines. Look, there's a lot to get into here. First of all, let me just say to the overall quarterbacking point, you have to go back to the early 90s to see anything remotely close to this, where in one weekend we had in the AFC Championship game the Bills against the Broncos, which was Kelly versus Elway. And then in the NFC Championship game, it was Troy Aikman and Steve Young in the NFC Championship game. So, yeah, that's, that's the level of quarterbacking we're looking at here. As for the Josh Allen thing, look, he played better down the last five weeks of the season than Patrick Mahomes did. There's no question about that in my mind. So uh, there's so much rich. Listen, first of all, let me just get this out of my way. This is my favorite Sunday of the entire football year, even bigger than the Super Bowl, because if any player is honest with you, all they want is the opportunity to play for a championship. The opportunity to step into the Super Bowl and say, hey, here we go. I'm going to get my chance. So there are two games with that on the line. And I, this is my line I use all the time about Championship Sunday. Four teams, two games, one dream. And that's to play for the Lombardi Trophy. There is nothing worse as a player or a coach when you slaved your entire life to get to this point and to lose on the doorstep of the Super Bowl. Look, losing the Super Bowl sucks. There's no question about it. But at least you got there. You know what I mean? You had the opportunity. You may not have cashed it in, but you had the opportunity. And I think that's the thing that makes the pain of losing on Championship Sunday sometimes even worse than losing the Super Bowl because you didn't even get a chance. And that's why this, this Sunday to me is always my favorite Sunday of the year. And I will agree with you from the standpoint that there's two games versus the one, which is the Super Bowl, which is the biggest game. But these storylines, Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, we saw last week a different version of that storyline. Drew Brees now packing it in along with Phillip Rivers. They retired after after exceptional careers. I mean, Brees obviously won a Super Bowl. Rivers never did. But Rivers still had a, a great 17-year career. But... Aaron Rodgers yeah. and Tom Brady both have won Super Bowls. Tom Tom Brady's gunning for his seventh Super Bowl. But talk about the quarterback matchup here. You've got uh, an Aaron Rodgers who's not quite as old as Tom Brady, but Aaron Rodgers is having arguably the best season of his career. It's mind-boggling. And Tom Brady, with the TB12 method, has turned back the clock. There were some speed bumps in Tampa, but they've righted the ship. Antonio Brown's not going to play, so I don't know how much of an impact 
that'll have because he's got a, an embarrassment of riches at, at wideout and and tight end. But talk about the quarterback matchup and how you think it shakes out. Well, let's just try and put in perspective what you're talking about with, with Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, right? Let, let, let me try and put it numerically so people can understand how crazy it is what we're seeing. As a quarterback, Tom Brady has led his team to 32 postseason wins. Combined, Aaron Rodgers, Brett Favre, and Bart Starr have led their teams in Green Bay to 32 postseason wins. Those three quarterbacks have won four Super Bowls for the Packers. Tom Brady has won six. That's how insanely off the charts, never to be seen again, ridiculous the career of Tom Brady has been. And let's put it another way, just for the NFC Championship game first. Aaron Rodgers has a chance to go to only his second Super Bowl in his entire career tomorrow. That's ridiculous because he's been so good for so long, but he's only been once. And if he wins Sunday, he'll go twice, which is amazing. Tom Brady is playing for the opportunity to go to his 10th Super Bowl. I want to be be clear about that. He's really only started 19 seasons because one year he didn't play, and in 2008 he blew out his ACL on a hit from Bernard Pollard in the first game of the year in the first half. So he's quarterbacked for 19 seasons. If he wins tomorrow and the team wins, he will have gone to the Super Bowl in more than half of his seasons played. I don't think people fully appreciate how bonkers that is. It's insane when you put it in that perspective. It's kind of like, you know, the the passing of, of Hank Aaron yesterday. I had Tim Kirchin on, and we were talking about career perspective in terms of numbers. The the Hank Aaron, the Henry Aaron stat of 20 seasons with 20 home runs is the one that really boggles my mind. Like The consistency you have to have is really what I'm saying about Tom Brady here is that Tom Brady has been, outside of that he's the GOAT and he gets called the GOAT and you see all the memes it's incredible that a guy has been able to maintain that type of consistency at a position where you're being targeted to get crushed on every play. Just the I mean, the odds are insane of that happening. Well, let's put it another way. It's his 14th conference championship game in 19 full seasons. Or put another way, Tom Brady is more likely to appear in a conference championship game than most quarterbacks are to complete a pass. <laughs> it's wild. It is wild. So before we wrap up on this, because I want to get to the Bills and, and the Chiefs, before we wrap on this, what do you think happens tomorrow in this game? Who wins this game? Who do you see prevailing? Look, here's the problem that I see for Tampa Bay. They won 11 games and then two in the postseason, but they didn't have a single play home game. They had to go on the road to Washington because Washington won the division. And they had to go on the road to New Orleans. Now they got to go on the road to Green Bay. It is really, really hard to win three straight playoff games on the road. And while Tom Brady is absolutely comfortable in cold weather, we know that from all his years at Foxborough, I'm curious how many of the team that goes with him is used to that. I cannot overestimate the importance of the bye week. Since Super Bowl 47, when the Ravens made it as a wild card team or a team that played on wild card weekend, it has been either a one or two seed 
to play in the Super Bowl. And up until this year, the one of the two seeds got the bye. This year, only the one seeds got the bye. Number one in the AFC is Kansas City. Number one in the NFC is Green Bay. So 14 straight Super Bowl teams had that week, that bye week. And I just think that bye week, three straight weeks on the road, Aaron Rodgers playing at his absolute best of his career, to your point, he's going to be the MVP of the league this year. That's really hard for me to overcome. I know Brady is this and that. This is Aaron Rodgers' time. He's, he's, he has the best passer rating and the most touchdown passes in the NFL. And I just think this is his chance to stamp his name with all the greats because whether it's right or wrong, and I think it's wrong, fair or unfair, I think it's unfair, you don't get considered to be one of the Mount Rushmore quarterbacks of all time without multiple Super Bowl rings. And this is his opportunity to have that chance in a couple of weeks in Tampa. Bills and Kansas City Chiefs makes me go back to the the heyday of the AFL, just the imagery of it and the smoke billowing out of the linemen's nostrils and all the romanticism of those games. The last time the Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs met in the AFC Championship game, Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen weren't even born. And the Bills Mafia has really, really come to play. And the excitement in Buffalo and the tools that Josh Allen has displayed this year have been outstanding. This is a different battle. This is a battle of the young guns. Patrick Mahomes is still a kid. He's won his Super Bowl. He's an MVP. Josh Allen is trying to challenge that throne. And and you got to beat the best to be the best. What happens in this game? And talk about the storyline between those two quarterbacks. Well, first of all, the storyline goes back to really 2017, if you'll allow me for a second. Because it was in the 2017 draft that the Chiefs made the big move up to the 10th spot to draft Patrick Mahomes. The team they traded with was the Buffalo Bills. The Buffalo Bills are trying to get to the Super Bowl for the first time in 27 years. And the pick they ended up getting when they traded away their 10th pick to Patrick Mahomes for the Chiefs was pick number 27. I think that's kind of cool. And it worked out well for both teams because obviously Mahomes is going to be a no doubt in my mind, absolute all-timer. Like the things he's done his first three seasons as a starter are flat-out ridiculous. And now you have that trade, which allowed the Bills to get Tredavious White, who, by the way, wears 27, at number 27. Uh, They also picked up uh, Deion Dawkins and Tremaine Edmonds, the linebacker, in that deal. And having not taken a quarterback at 10, it allowed them the next year to pick up Josh Allen. So the storylines there, I think, are absolutely fascinating. But here's the deal. And I I know that a lot of folks in Toronto are probably not going to be really happy with me. But if Mahomes played the entire game against the Browns, there's no doubt in my mind they went by 20 points. They were up 19-3. to And then it should have been 23-3 because the kicker missed an extra point in the field goal from extra point distance in Harrison Butker. So they should have been up 23-3 in cruising. Then he gets hurt, and they have to hang on for dear life. But the other problem for me is what are you going to do, Buffalo, defensively against Patrick Mahomes? I go back to the Week 6 matchup this season, which was on a Monday or Tuesday because of all the COVID stuff. It was a Monday. And here's what happened. 
That game, the Buffalo Bills did not blitz Patrick Mahomes one time. Why didn't they blitz him one time? Well, it's pretty obvious. Because since Patrick Mahomes became a starter in 2018, here are his numbers against the blitz. Highest completion percentage, highest passer rating, highest yards per attempt, and best touchdown to interception ratio across the board. So the Bills said, we're going to sit back. We're going to take away all the deep balls to Tyreek Hill and Sammy Watkins and uh, DeMarco, Marcus Robinson, and we're going to make you work your way down the field. And the Chiefs said, no problem. They ran for over 240 yards in that game and ran Buffalo out of their own stadium. Now, look, the Bills are playing much better now than they did back then. But the conundrum is still the same for Sean McDermott and his defensive coaching staff. What are you going to do? Are you going to blitz Patrick Mahomes? Because his story says if you do, he'll pick you apart. Or are you going to sit back again and let them do what they did very effectively, by the way, against the Cleveland Browns defense in the divisional round? Fight off four, five, six yards at a time. Uh, Williams has done a great job. I think Le'Veon Bell is going to have a big part of this matchup. And I think Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is going to be able to play. So that's a huge situation. And I'll throw one more thing in for you. The Buffalo Bills gave up more receptions to tight ends this regular season than any other team. So if you're going to take away the deep ball, be prepared for a bunch of passes over the middle, Travis Kelsey and running backs coming out of the backfield. Eventually, that'll open things up. And if Mahomes is 80%, I feel pretty confident that the Chiefs are going to win that game. Trey, as always, outstanding insight and analysis, and I highly recommend, if you're listening to this program, check out Trey's podcast. It's a video podcast, Half Forgotten History, at Wingo Z on Twitter. And, of course, we look forward to you calling golf again. Congrats on that new endeavor. And, as always, thanks for taking the time to be on the show. And, by the way, if the Bucks and the Bills win, none of this conversation ever happened. <laughs> thanks, pal. Have a great weekend. Hi, Joey. Do well, buddy. All right. That is Trey Wingo. Always a, does an amazing job. He, he's just pulling stats out of everywhere. It's just blowing my head off. I'm sitting here saying, ah, huh, ah, ah. Well, if you're going to make a wager, you probably have a little more information now. We're going to take the break and come back. Massive trade in the National Hockey League. Huge. Seismic. Earth-shattering. And we're going to discuss it. Pierre-Luc Dubois for Patrick Laine. That's the headline. Jamie Thomas is going to join us. He does an outstanding job in Winnipeg as the radio analyst for the Jets. And he will surmise to give us the information on this trade that you need to know when we return here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm curious for an organization that prides itself on character. When you see a player who seemingly had some evidence that he gave up on his teammates, if you're expecting to, if you're wondering what exactly you're inheriting. Yeah, so I wouldn't attach myself to any of the words that you just said. But, um, I don't know what, what went on there. I mean, I know you, you get the camera on them and you decide what you see. None of us were a part of what went on there. You have no idea what went on in the background. So I'd be careful with my character assassinations before I get to meet the man. He'll walk in here. He'll present himself. We'll accept him with open arms, as we always do with new players, and we'll judge him by uh, how he becomes a Winnipeg Jet. I love Paul Maurice and the way he just level sets it. As people want to go after Pierre-Luc Dubois, 
you got to give the kid the benefit of the doubt. Let him go into Winnipeg with a clean slate. It's Joey Vendetta. Welcome back to the Joey Vendetta Show. A huge trade in the National Hockey League consummated earlier today. And it happened pretty quickly. And the return was Patrick Line along with Jack Roslovich. And joining me now is the fine radio personality. I like the word personality because it's it's much more flattering than using the technical term analyst. But he is an analyst for the Winnipeg Jets. His name's Jamie Thomas. We welcome him to the program. Jamie, thank you very much for doing this. How are you today? I'm great, Joey. I don't know if you ever worked with Nelson Millman uh, at the fan. I'm sure you came across him a couple of times. But he I know him, yeah. That. Yeah, of course. Uh, he always told me, he goes, stop kidding yourself. You're not a journalist. You're an entertainer. That's what he told me all the time. <laughs> Get over yourself. You're just an entertainer and go well, with that. That's the best way to go. So uh, I, I like the entertainer factor in it as well on top of analyst. Yeah, that's why I always yeah. find it funny when people – you know, we we I was one of the first guys to say that Springer was signing with the Jays, and then we thought Brantley was coming too because I'd heard it was done, yeah. and then it wasn't. And people were like, "You're not an insider." I know. I don't care. I don't want to be an insider. Yeah, I'm a host. I'm a personality. My job is to make you angry, right? My job is to make you upset. That's my job. So and I just won. Yeah, fantastic. I'm glad. I'm glad that you call me a clown and put some emojis down. Have fun in your mom's basement. Take care. So let's talk about this trade. And For sure. look, line A, line A was disgruntled to a degree, but carried himself in a manner professionally. The Luke Dubois scenario, and, I, and I'm buddies with, with Pat Brisson, his agent, and yeah. we texted a little bit. And look, Tortorella is Tortorella. And if you play along with the program, then you're going to be okay. And that means work hard every single shift like you're a grunt. And that shift, the one that we saw the other night that was highlighted, was the straw that broke the camel's back, basically. this It wasn't an isolated incident. These guys didn't get along. He didn't want to be there. And now the Winnipeg Jets are very strong down the middle, but they lost one of the pure goal scorers in the National Hockey League. Yeah, it, it, goals are hard to replace, absolutely. But I think the argument now when you come over here is being deep down the middle and especially being big down the middle is a big difference maker when you want to have success in the playoffs. Um, the Jets have done that. Um, it is hard to replace the goals that Patrick Lane scores, and it's hard to replace the goals in the, the manner that he scores. He scores big you know, a huge booming shot on the power play, timely goals in overtime, like in the in the opener against the Calgary Flames. That's what Patrick Lenny does. He is he puts butts in the seats and he puts eyes on the TV set and ears to, to the radio to listen to what he's going to do next. So th- that part is going to be tough. But now you have a scenario where you have Mark Shifley, you have Pierre Luc Dubois, you have Paul Stastny and Adam Lowry all up the middle, all fair size individuals, minus Paul Stastny. So now you have the benefit of wealth up the middle, and I think that's what the Jets were looking at. You get another year of a deal with Pierre-Luc Dubois in time to convince them about what, how great it is to be here as well and then go long-term. So uh, it, it's funny how people focus on the guy leaving instead of, of the guy that's coming in, but with what Patrick Lenny did here you know, in his time in Winnipeg, I could see why that focus is there. And look, Dubois was outstanding last year in the bubble against the Maple Leafs. He owned them. Yeah. The guy played unbelievable, so... 
you're getting a guy that now is going to get into the Leafs' heads, and the, and the Leafs are a team that is favored to win the Canadian division by many people. But the, now Winnipeg, of all the teams, kind of stood pat the most. I mean, the Canucks lost who they lost, and they added Nate Schmidt. But yeah. the Winnipeg Jets now suddenly became a different team. And as you said, goals are tough to replace. But what are they getting in, in Pierre-Luc Dubois? You said a big body. What else are they getting? Yeah, I got a centerman with a mean streak too, right? I think a lot of people overlook the fact he had 238 penalty minutes in, in junior. So, like, the guy does like to mess it up. He's a strong body. And you are going to play the Maple Leafs nine more times this year. So, there is that conversation. You always like to build your roster around what your division looks like. And the Jets are slowly doing that. Of course, it's not going to happen overnight because this, this might not be the structure of the organization, the division certainly going forward after this year. But if you want to have success this year, you got that big mean centerman that's going to allow you to push, allow you to keep Mark Shifley on the on the side uh, during the power play. Kyle Connor on the other side. You got the guy that's going to be a good net front presence along with Blake Wheeler and Josh Morrissey on your power play, and it allows you to put Paul Stastny down on the second man advantage unit, so you have a little bit more depth uh, when you have the power play. So I think you get a lot of you get a guy a mean streak, which you cannot have enough of. I think especially in the middle part of your. Uh, of your lineups and again a guy that can play and and can shoot the puck there's a lot lost on his ability to score five on five and he was even with Patrick Line in that department a year ago what exactly are the Blue Jackets getting in a guy that's missed all but one game they've only played a few games but Line has been hurt so they have to know what they're getting in terms of what the injury is and how long he's going to be out right yeah, I, I, clearly there's a lot. There's a quarantine issue too. Don't forget that you know Pierre Luc Dubois has to come up here in quarantine for 14 days as well, mm-hmm. unless the the Canadian teams are trying to get that uh, situation rolled out that they had in training camp, where a guy can come here and quarantine for seven days and then could come back if he has four negative tests. NHL Canadian teams are trying to work that out with the government right now. But if, if you look at what the uh, the you the guy again. Is, Columbus is a great hockey town. I think a lot of people forget that they're saying the guy's coming here and he's coming to a great hockey town. I think Columbus is good too when Ohio State isn't playing in football. So Line A is a guy that's going to add a lot of depth up front for you and produce on your power play. And I think you know I know Columbus is a little bit thinner at center because of this trade, but now you got a guy that can score and has just a gift and. You know, whatever the injury is, it's an upper body injury, I believe. I think they'll go work that out, and he probably should be able to play pretty soon. But Paul Murray said it best. Both teams are going to win this trade because you're getting something that you need, uh, clearly what you're getting. So, But I, what I saw in Patrick Laine toward the last part of last year, uh, I know he didn't get a whole lot of time in the playoffs. And then that one game this year is a guy, when he's physically engaged, is a very dangerous player. He's starting to turn into a true power forward. Uh, which is not what he was to start his NHL career. But now as he's getting bigger and turning into a man, you're, you're getting that. And I think you're getting some physicality that maybe was lost a little bit and better in his own end five on five that he clearly wasn't at the beginning part of his career. So a more rounded, well-rounded player than he was to start his NHL career, but a guy that can score. And again, whenever fans are allowed back in Columbus, if they're indeed, you know, if he's there next year, a guy that's going to be a big fan favorite. And the Jets are retaining 26% of line yeah. A salary. And how does that impact them? Uh, not a whole lot, right? There's it, it, you got to crunch the numbers. You still have Brian Little on LTIR, which gives you a lot of cap flexibility. So I, clearly they're not going to take the 26% on if they can't, you know, can't move things around. But 
Uh, you know, Dylan DeMello comes back in the lineup tonight. There's no, there's no problems, Joey's, in terms of the, of the salary structure for the Winnipeg Jets. So uh, it is clearly something that was important to Columbus with their salary cap issues. And I know they do have some more moves to make uh, to make it fit, but uh, we'll see how that all works. But a good, a good deal all around in the whole scheme of things, in my opinion. So Tortorella said, this is a 22-year-old kid. It doesn't happen that often. So he, he's, he has been honest with the group. I wish he was a little bit more honest as far as reasons why. I st- still haven't really gotten to that, but I think he needs to speak on that. I won't. So basically, Tortorella called the kid a liar, which I understand is fine. That, that's his prerogative yeah. to motivate his players or, or demotivate them as he sees fit. What happened with Line A in, in Winnipeg? What, where did it sour for him in Winnipeg? I, I think a lot of it was he wanted to play in the top line with, uh, with Mark Shifley, right? And last year they did give him the opportunity, and the analytics speak to the fact that it didn't work out. It just never seemed to produce five-on-five and drive play at the other end of the rink the way that the, the Jets hoped and Paul Maurice hoped. So you, you, you give him that opportunity. It didn't work out the way they hoped it would, and then Patrick Lund is down the second line. Now you bring in Paul Stastny, I thought, would help placate him a little bit more to give him that playmaking centerman, and, but clearly the relationship was there, lost, and you know the agent had asked uh, it would be best for everybody if, if Line A wasn't in Winnipeg and in the offseason. So I think you have – I think it was just the opportunity he didn't believe was there. I thought the Jets gave him the opportunity that was necessary when the time was there, and it just didn't work out. And now we have people, two parties moving on and getting fresh starts somewhere else. You can follow him on Twitter at Jamie Thomas TV, radio color analyst for the Winnipeg Jets. And I'm going to go back to that quote that I just gave at Tortorella, basically calling Pierre-Luc Dubois a liar and saying that the kid didn't put the effort forth. And we saw that shift again. There was that one crystallizing moment that I think where he punched his ticket out of Columbus. But this is, as you said, a snarly kid, a big kid. He's going to help the Winnipeg Jets a ton down the middle. What do you think the Patrick Line future with Tortorella is? If if he didn't like it in Winnipeg, how's he going to like it on that shift where he lollygags it and then he gets stapled to the bench? I, I don't know if you're going to see that from from Patrick Laine now, Joey, because I think his attitude changed a little bit. He started to work harder in his own end of the rink, and that's exactly what you know John Tortorella wants. If those moments come up, I think Patrick Laine knows what the repercussions are going to be. It's been in front of us for as long as John Tortorella has been in the National Hockey League coaching. I don't think he's going there with his eyes closed. He pretty much knows what to expect, so... Uh, they might clash heads. I don't see it happening because of the way Patrick Laine has changed his games, his attitude the last couple of years in terms of what he wants to do in his own end of the rink. So if it happens, I'll be surprised. If it doesn't, if it, uh, if it doesn't, then I won't, I'll be just not as surprised anyway. So um, it's, I think they're getting a good player and a guy that's going to change everything in the way he plays the game at both ends of the rink. Jamie, thanks for doing this on such short notice. We appreciate your time. Take care of yourself, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, Joey, all the best, man. Thanks for having me on. All right, we're going to take the break and come back and preview tonight's fight. It's UFC 257. Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier in what Conor thinks should be a championship fight. 
Frank Trigg, UFC Hall of Famer, stuntman and MMA judge, gives you the benefit of his wisdom when we come back on the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back. It is the Joey Vendetta Show. We're going to get to some of your texts. And we asked you who won the trade between the Jets and the Blue Jackets. And also, are you happy with what the Blue Jays done so far? And what else do they need to do to make you happier? You can text us at 590-590. We're going to get to Frank Trigg in a minute here and preview UFC 257 tonight. Poirier, McGregor. Connor seems back mentally. His vibe's different. It's back. Kind of got Hollywood there for a minute. Seems like he's back to being a fighter. We'll find out more from Frank in a moment here as soon as we get him. Let's get to the text here. And Stevie in Parkdale. Joe, too many question marks in the starting rotation. Need to shore that up. Love what Columbus gets in the trade. So he commented on both questions. Thanks, Stevie. Troy in Grimsby. Lineup is set. Still a lot to prove. However, confident these players will take large. I think I read this text already, but I agree. Both the starting pitching is the issue. We know that. Right? This is obvious for the Toronto Blue Jays. That's, that's what we need in terms of depth. And if you look at the starting pitching as it stands right now, it's not good enough to win a World Series. It's got to get better. It gets infinitely better with Bauer. Question is, are you going to overpay? So we'll read some more of your text right now. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the program a man who has pretty much done it all in the MMA world, but also done some work in Hollywood as a stuntman. But he's a retired mixed martial artist, color commentator, pro wrestler, MMA referee, and of course, UFC Hall of Famer. Please welcome to the program at Frank Trigg on Twitter. Frank Trigg, thanks for doing this, Frank. I know you're in the midst of shooting, and we appreciate you taking the time out to be with us today. Well, you know, it's not in the midst of shooting. I'm in the midst of sleeping from shooting last night. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, Fair they, enough. Uh, we, had a late, we, had a super late, we had a super late night last night, but it was, uh, it was actually nice. Because um, I got to sit around and watch uh, uh, in between takes, got to watch all the all the hype videos for the fights tonight. So, so so what were you shooting? If you don't mind telling us, uh, I don't mind telling you, but I can't tell you. Okay, fair <laughs> it's, enough. Uh, it's a Disney, it's a Disney, it's a Disney show in the Star Wars universe. That's all I can say. Um, we'll be coming out sometime in December. Uh, it's the first season, so that's just kind of how it goes. All right, awesome. Well, th- well, I'm, I'm glad that you made it, and we appreciate your time and. Look, yeah, UFC 257 is – you got Conor McGregor who is saying that this should be a title fight, and I don't disagree with him, right? Uh-huh. You got Nur, uh, Nurmagomedov who's who's basically retired. His mom says that she doesn't want him to fight anymore. You got Dustin Poirier who is in great shape, just like Conor who looks like he's back to being Conor the fighter as opposed to the guy who became – the 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 notorious Conor McGregor, the the persona. I, I'm just feeling more of Conor, the guy that became a fighter because he loved to fight. I'll give you a quick analogy and then let you comment on it. It's kind of like in Rocky when Rocky Balboa gets all the endorsements and gets kind of fat 
you know, spiritually, right? He kind of gets fat in terms of the money and you get everything. And, and that happened to Connor, but I, I sense the hunger is back. And I want you to kind of comment. Am I off or, or, or do you feel the same way? First of all, you're talking about uh, Rocky three and that was with uh, Mr. Yes. T is Clubber Lang. Uh, yeah, that was actually one of the better, better movies of the, of the 87 they made for that series. <laughs> um, so first of all, how long did they wait before they stripped Connor of his belt? Um, when he sat out for two or two plus years, Khabib's only said he's not going to fight for like two months now. And they're already talking about you got to take the belt away. You got to get him, you know, kind of retired too. Connor said, Look, I'm done. I'm retiring. I'm not going to yep. fight anymore. And they sat for a while before they took the belt away. So for them to go to Khabib and go, We're taking it right now just because Connor's fighting, it's a little disingenuous. And, and so I can kind of see what they're doing, how they're holding it. Plus, let's not forget the only fight, to be honest with you, the only fight that's going to be bigger than Poirier and McGregor. Uh, two is McGregor Khabib two. That's the only fight that's going to be bigger. And let, let's be honest, from a business standpoint, the UFC is truly trying to make that fight happen again. They really want that fight to happen. You're talking about tonight's going to break records on pay-per-view numbers and they're doing a better job of catching on the legal streamers and this whole bit. The bigger fight is going to be Khabib and Connor. And believe me, if Connor wins tonight, he's going to call out Khabib and try to make it a whole thing to try to you know, entice him to come back. Um, I'm telling you, I, I'm pretty much 90% sure Khabib's not fighting ever again. Like, he, he's done. That's, that's just the kind of guy he is. He made a promise to his mom he's not going to fight. He's not going to fight. So we're all, but we can all hope. And, and believe me, I want that fight to happen as well. Like, I really would love to see this fight happen to, you know, happen for the second time. We kind of see, did, is, is Khabib that good? Or did he just catch Connor on the night? And, and see, like, kind of like with Diaz. Diaz caught Connor on the night. And then the second time around, he got it, you know, took a, took a licking by him for, for uh, five rounds. So it, it is one of those situations. I do believe that Connor believes he's back to that fight guy, that he's back to that guy that loves to fight and really wants to come in and bring this fight. I do believe what you said he believes is correct. The reality of it is when you have $400 million in your bank account, you're not the guy that's coming off the couch living on welfare. You're not the guy that, that was struggling every day knowing you had the win to provide for your family. You're not the guy that's like, if oh, I'm a little sore today, I think I'm going to take some time off, or I can't because I have no money. He's not that guy anymore. He always has this, this backup of, you know what, it doesn't matter. If I lose, I still, I'm still okay for the rest of my life. If I lose, my, my son will be taken care of for the rest of my life and the rest of his life. I have enough money in the bank account. I can sell off my big yacht. I can sell off the third house. I can sell off the fifth car. I can get rid of my million-dollar watch, and my entire family still going to be taken care of. So you can't be that hungry guy that you were with that kind of money in your bank account. It's just not possible. We've seen it in, you know, played over and over again in all these different scenarios. But I believe that Connor believes that he's back to that person. And with Connor, that's the thing. If he believes it, he makes it happen. He's one of those guys that wills it into, wills it into happening just by putting it out in the universe. He believes he's that fighter. He's going to make Dustin believe he's that fighter. And then have you seen the trick excuse me, that Connor's been doing with this, with this whole fight? He, uh, Al Quenta actually said it best. He's kumbayaing uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, Poirier. He's making him yeah. believe it's going to be a great thing. He's hugging him. He's saying it's great. It's a great thing. But you watch what happened seven years ago. Uh, uh, Connor started the trash talk. Dustin started the trash talk. Connor did a stir off. Connor got you know got in her stance and got really aggressive. Then Dustin got in his stance and got really aggressive. He's always kind of a half a step behind. It's the same thing today. In this whole week, as soon as Connor came out, and started being being nice. Dustin started being nice. When he got the stare down, Connor got in his stance first. Dustin got in his stance. Connor lowered his level. Dustin lowered his level. He's always kind of like a step behind. But you can't forget it's Dustin Poirier. He's been on a 10-2 run while Connor's been sitting around spending money and buying yachts. 
Okay, so while, while, while Connor is spending his money and living the high-leverage lifestyle and popping bottles of champagne, Dustin's been fighting. He's had five fight of the nights during this time, during his 10-2 and two run that he's had since his, last, since his last fight seven years ago, and he's been on an incredible run from the, time that, from the last time Connor fights till now. So now the question becomes, is ring rust a real factor? I don't think ring rust will be a factor with Connor. I really don't. He's just too good of a guy to have time off being that big of a deal. He's mentally the strongest. You want to make, play the mental game? Already it's for a 10 Connor if you're playing the mental game. But wait till Dustin throws that first punch that actually, actually lands on Connor and hits him. And the whole fight changed. Like Mike Tyson said years and years ago, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Once Connor gets hit once, really hard, not a little glancing jab, but a really hard snap your head back kind of punch. Whenever that punch happens, if it does happen, we're going to see what kind of Connor we have. What's really going to happen? Because now all of a sudden, his, the, all that mental capability that you have all goes away, and now it comes down to pre- preparation and physical talent. And what does he have? To be honest with you, from, like, if it was a betting standpoint, like if I have to bet because the bookie said I got to bet, I got to bet Poirier. It doesn't make any sense to bet McGregor. He's a, he's a minus 315 on some books and minus 305 on others. It doesn't make any sense. But it's Conor McGregor. So if you're talking about a straight bet, you're betting your family at home, you're talking about a guy that's going to that's gonna win the fight, you've always got to bet Conor. I've been betting against Conor since his third fight in the UFC, trying to catch back up to the money. And you can't catch it because he wins all the damn time. That's just what Conor McGregor is. He's a guy that wins. He's a winner. You put guys in the line, you go, what kind of guy are you? McGregor's a winner. He makes things happen. He's always been that way since he's very, very young in the fight game. And all the way until now, he finds a way to make things happen. But I really love the way Poirier is approaching this fight. I really love the way he did his training camp. I love the way that Poirier is really putting his face forward and really is going to sell it and put it out there because he also understands, I believe that, that Dustin just turned 32. I really believe he's going to be the, he's a guy that understands that he doesn't have very many shots left. At 32 years old, at the amount of damage he's taken in these fights, and I talked about those five fight of the nights, they were fight of the nights because you have to get hit to make it a fight of the night. You, you, don't, you don't get fight of the night by being the guy that beats up the other guy and never gets touched. It doesn't happen like that. You have to have some back and forth. He's taking a lot of damage in those fights, a lot of damage. Nothing that you're going to say, oh, wow, it's going to cause head trauma and you're going to be able to provide for his family at a later date, but he's definitely had a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of damage to his body, and is that going to be a factor coming into this fight? And I think this fight's a lot closer than people think it is, but I'm actually leaning on the side of Dustin Poirier just because I think he's got a little bit more to offer right now. And then let's just see what happens with Conor. But do not be surprised if Conor pulls this fight out. He's just an amazing athlete in that sense. Our guest is UFC Hall of Famer stuntman and MMA judge Frank Trigg. Frank, thank you so much for that really well-spoken, well-put analysis. On the technical side, for someone that doesn't know MMA well, what do you expect? We only got a couple of minutes here, but what do you expect from an actual fighting style side tonight? Okay, so Connor's going to come out in his typical wide karate stance, super long and lead. Dustin knows it's going to happen. He's probably try to attack that lead leg a little bit. Um, Connor's decent at wrestling. He's gotten much better, but he's not, I don't think he's going to try and take him down early, early in the uh, first part of the, of the fight. He's going to wait a little bit. So Dustin's going to have some time to kind of kick out that lead leg. Connor, though, is very crafty. As you're kicking out his lead leg, he's going to come over the top or come underneath your punches with some little small short jabs. And then once he feels like you've been hurt by any one of these punches, is when he's going to attack. So Dustin has to keep his guard up very high and keep it very tight. If, if Connor touches you at that weight class, you have a chance of going to sleep. That, that's, that's just the power that Connor brings to it. Both guys are cardio machines. Both guys have great cardio. So I know this question I saw running around the internet talking about Connor's cardio for some reason. No, he, he doesn't get – everybody gets tired during a fight. 
you're spending energy. You're going to get tired. It doesn't matter who you are. And if you think you're not going to be tired, then obviously you've never done anything significant in training. Connor gets tired. He doesn't get more tired than anybody else. You've got a guy like Khabib on top of you smothering you the whole time. That is exhausting. You've got like Nate Diaz on you who you punch in the face 7,000 times. He doesn't go down. You're going to get tired. and Eventually he's going to catch you or something because that's just what the Diaz brothers do. But he always makes adjustments. Connor's very good at making the small adjustments even throughout the fight. So we're going to see some big adjustments come to the third round if he's getting touched at all by Dustin. And I think if he's getting beat up on his feet or it's very, very close on his feet to the point where John Kavanaugh, his coach, cannot figure out who's winning the fight at this point, then I see Connor trying to take it to the ground. Dustin is the better guy on the ground, but he's he's the better guy on the ground on top. On his back, it's going to be very difficult for him to kind of keep Connor off him. He'll do enough not to get hit, but he's going to have a hard time submitting a guy like Connor from that from that position because he's still active. I'm going to, I expect on our feet for Connor to kind of win the game by using his foot motion and stepping off offline left and right. And if Dustin can establish the fact that he's the better striker and the more and the more pinpoint striker uh, uh, in the very beginning, which sometimes Connor comes out a little bit too heavy in the beginning, then Dustin could dictate the fight on his feet. Uh, uh, for me, for a finish in this fight, the only way I only see this fight happening, the, the, the two ways that this fight finishes is Conor McGregor in under two and a half rounds with a knockout or TKO, or Poirier winning, winning a long, uh, uh, drawn out, you know, you know, I'm, I'm now winning into the fourth round kind of thing, and then mm-hmm. Conor has to come back and realizes I need to get a knockout, and then he overextends, and then Dustin catches him late in a TKO or KO. I don't see this fight going the distance. I see this fight ending in a KO or TKO, but early for, for McGregor and late for Poirier. Frank, so well put. Thank you so much for doing this. We appreciate your time. And again, thanks for taking time out of your schedule for being on the program. Joey, so much fun. I'm so glad I got to come on. And thanks for making space for me. Yeah, of course. Anytime. We look forward to having you on again soon. That is Frank Trigg, UFC Hall of Famer. Fantastic analysis on the fight tonight. We're going to take the break. We're going to come back with... The first American ever drafted number one overall in the National Hockey League and get his perspective on, amongst other things, the huge trade between the Columbus Blue Jackets and the Winnipeg Jets trading two star players. When we return on the Joey Vendetta Show here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back. The headlines, Hank Aaron passing away at the age of 86 yesterday. Larry King passing away this morning at the age of 87. Two icons in their own rights. NFL playoffs tomorrow. Championship Sunday. We previewed it with Trey Wingle earlier in the program. Raptors defeated the Heat 101-81 last night. Norm Powell going off in place of Kyle Lowry out with a toe infection. Led all scorers with 23 points. OG looked good. Pascal looked good. And, of course, yesterday was the 15th anniversary of the Kobe Bryant 81-point game against the Raptors. I was actually there in L.A. Almost left at halftime. That's how bad it was. NHL last night, Washington 4, Buffalo 3, Pittsburgh 4, New York 3. Toronto beat the Oilers. Chicago beat Detroit. Minnesota beat San Jose. Dallas playing their first game of the season. Smacked Nashville. Forget Smashville. 7-0. Arizona beat Vegas 5-2, Columbus 3-2 over Anaheim. And tonight on Hockey Night in Canada on Sportsnet. Habs, Canadian, 7 o'clock Eastern, 4 Pacific on Sportsnet, CBC, and City TV. And the Senators and the Jets 
10 o'clock Eastern, 7 Pacific, Sportsnet, and CBC as well. And, of course, the big news, the massive trade, Pierre-Luc Dubois for Patrick Laine. And it is my pleasure, as always, to welcome to the program the first-ever American drafted overall in the National Hockey League, had a long and distinguished career with the Minnesota North Stars, and, of course, played for a bunch of other teams, including the Rangers, the Whalers, Quebec, Boston, San Jose, General manager of the Tampa Bay Lightning, a super agent as well, and of course does an incredible job on the NHL Network. It's my pleasure as always to welcome NHL Network analyst Brian Lawton at Brian Lawton Nine on Twitter. Lots, thanks a lot for being on the program. How are you today? Doing great, Joey. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. That was very kind and for having me today. Yeah, well, thank you. It's always well-deserved. We appreciate you taking the time. Look, before we talk about the actual trade, you have had experience with John Tortorella. When you went in to be the general manager in Tampa, Tortorella was the coach, and he got replaced by Barry Melrose. And Torts is a guy that has a reputation that precedes him. And I want to ask from your perspective, when you look at the way Pierre-Luc Dubois, who his agent is Pat Brisson, whom we both know well, is a, is a guy that dominated last year in the bubble against the Maple Leafs, looked outstanding, looked like he was just going to be, I, I don't know that he was going to be mentioned in the same breath as the superstars, but certainly a big body that can play real aggressive, that can score and do all those things that you want out of a number one center. How do you think it went south in Columbus with Tortorella? Uh, I don't know if we can specifically put the blame on John for this. John is, you know, John has his own style. It's very unique. Uh, I know John reasonably well. I've had the pleasure of just being on a couple of flights, flying back and either being sitting with him or just had some long conversations. And I think he's a terrific guy personally. Uh, this, you know, the way it's been explained publicly from Pierre-Luc Dubois his camp, as much as we could get, is that he wanted to play in a bigger market. Uh, he didn't give specific reasons, according to John and other Columbus people. Um, sometimes that's going to happen. But it's hard not to imagine that some of the conflicting styles didn't contribute to it. That was just never said. That would only be speculation on my side. John is a very principled guy. Uh, and I love that about him, quite frankly. Did he go too far to the point where maybe it hurt this overall negotiation, would it have been better for this to be private at least? Yes, absolutely. I've been a GM. If I were Yarmo Kikalainen, I would have preferred if none of this stuff was public and if we were going to make a trade or had to make a trade, we'd done it a little bit more under the cover of darkness. Now, look, you've had experience at every level as a player, as an agent, in the front office, analyzing the sport. You've been in the sport your entire life. Two different types of players here. Line A got criticized for being very lackadaisical when it came to defensive play. And he made a concerted effort to get better. But he has something that you really value and you really can't teach. He is a pure goal scorer and he is a physically imposing pure goal scorer. There aren't many of those in the National Hockey League. We know that he didn't want to be in Winnipeg, but he's ended up in Columbus. I'm not going to speculate on how excited or disappointed he is that that's where he's going. 
but how does he fit into a Columbus Blue Jacket team that is known more, as Torch said, we don't have a superstar. Well, well, now they have a superstar. How does Patrick Line fit into a team where the coach said we didn't have a superstar and it's really about all the oars rowing in the same direction? Well, first thing I can confirm that Patrick is incredibly, incredibly excited about joining Columbus. Um, I know that for a fact. I know there'll be a private plane picking up pretty soon to take him to Columbus. So wheels are in motion there. I know that he can't sign a new deal until at least March. Um, I know that he's in a very favorable place arbitration-wise. A lot, lot happening there. In terms of your specific question, though, how does he fit in? Well, the first question becomes, well, he wanted to get out of Winnipeg because he didn't always get to play maybe with the right people, the best people. It wasn't that he disliked the community of Winnipeg. It was that he wasn't happy, essentially, with his role. A little bit different than Pierre-Luc Dubois. He only played one game this year, but the guy gave it 110%. That much is clear before he got injured. So now he comes to Columbus. He knows Yarmo Kikulainen well. They've already been in contact. That's a pretty warm relationship with another countryman. That's going to bode well for the Columbus Blue Jackets. John Tortorella, though, is going to have to solve a little bit of the problem that he had in Winnipeg, and that was, do you have that really elite centerman that could take advantage of the skills that a guy like Patrick Laine has? There's really only two choices. That'd be Max Domi, newly acquired Max Domi, that's feeling his own way out in Columbus right now. And then a guy like Texier, that's just a second-year player. Incredibly skilled. I'm very bullish, but I'm not sure that's, you know, what Patrick Laine, you know, maybe envisioned when he was talking about getting moved. But as I said, I am told 100% definitively, he is incredibly excited about the opportunity to go to Columbus. Okay, and as you said, his issue in Winnipeg was he wasn't playing on the top line. He wasn't playing with the right people. And now he's going to a team that was devoid of goal scorers, right? They had 120 goal forward in Bjorkstrand. They started the season without a healthy Gustav Nyquist. So line A is going to be put into a position to succeed. And I agree with you that it takes two to tango, and this wasn't Tortorella's fault completely when it comes to Pierre-Luc Dubois. And I don't think that Tortorella goes looking to get rid of his assets and number one centers and big and big boys, right? So I think that the, it was two of them, just like you said, and Tortorella has a certain style. But now that Columbus has a pure goal scorer and a guy that has made an effort, as you said, he's... His his ability to score was never questioned, but his work ethic was questioned at times. And we know that that won't fly in a city like Columbus. And I know that he wouldn't have agreed to a trade there if he didn't know what he was getting himself into. He knows what he's getting with Tortorella. He knows what he's getting with Kukalainen, as you said. And he's excited to be there. So what kind of position do you think Columbus is going to put him in in terms of utilization? How how much is this guy going to play Liney? I, I don't know exactly what he played in Winnipeg, but I don't imagine he was playing huge minutes. And I think that when you're an elite player like a Patrick Liney, I think you got to play elite minutes. Do you think that will be part of the plan? A hundred percent. 
He'll get every opportunity. He'll continue to score goals at the same rate with or without a guy that is really setting it on a tee for him. He's proven he can do that. So that won't change. I think he'll get elevated minutes and opportunity, though. And it's not like he wasn't getting a good opportunity on the power play. He was. Um, but he didn't get opportunities on that top line, usually Connor Wheeler and Shifley, of course. And, uh, you know, I don't think that sat that well with Patrick. Ultimately, he made it known he wanted to be moved. He didn't quit on the team. He gave him everything he had. He's been moved. Good for him. Now he's going to have a little bit of pressure to back that up. I think he will. Both him and Pierre-Luc Dubois, for different reasons, are a bit of unicorns themselves. First off, there's really not that many six-foot-three, 220-pound centermen that can skate, are big, a little bit nasty, have skill to finish, both making plays and scoring. So that in and are available. That makes him a completely rare bird. Good for the Winnipeg Jets. I think they did excellent to get him. Patrick Liney, on the other hand, there's just there's not four other players in the National Hockey League that could score from distance the way he can. It almost surprises goalies that he even tries, and yet they shouldn't be surprised because he can bury with a wrister from 25 feet. Now, that is a definitely a unicorn in the NHL. There are not that many guys that can do it. I'd say he's one of five at the most. So he, they're both special players. A lot of people have said center versus wing. It's not an even trade. I don't believe that. I think line A is that special. I don't think we've seen but maybe 70% of his potential, and that's pretty scary. Yeah, and now that he's in the North Division, Pierre-Luc Dubois, who, as I said, against the Toronto Maple Leafs last year in the bubble, was a real factor, right? So the Leafs pick up a win over the Oilers without Matthews. And Joe Thornton, who is going to be out at least a month, and apparently his ribs are pretty painful from what I know. And you now have a guy in the mix in Winnipeg in a team that was, I won't say criticized, but of all the teams in the Canadian division, they were pretty much the least active in the offseason because they had a pretty set top six of elite players. But now they add someone down the middle with Shifley and with Stastny that they're arguably the strongest team in the North Division now down the middle. Uh, I don't disagree with that. I mean, well, first off, you know, let's look at a trade involving two countries. How long before Pierre-Luc yep. Dubois can play? It's going to be probably a couple weeks. That's the bad news. The good news is it will not change the Jets' last lineup. Rothelvik was not playing and Line was not playing. And they're doing fine. They should be able to hang in there. That won't be a factor. But when he is in the lineup, and you can roll Shifley out, and we know what that top line will be. But Pierre-Luc Dubois, he'll still get a chance to play with, I would say, Kopp uh, for sure, and Ehlers. That's not a terrible line either. That'll be plenty of weapons for Pierre-Luc Dubois to be effective, not to mention the fact that he won't have to be that number one guy. He can slide in behind Shifley. The third line, you've had Stastny there. Well, he was in the second hole, but he could move down to that third hole, or he could move to wing with Adam Lowry, who does a nice job of giving him that prototypical checking line. It's a lot of options for Winnipeg. Their Achilles heel is that they haven't been able to recover, in my opinion, on the back end from losing Tyler Myers, Jacob Truber, Ben Sherratt, and a retiring Dustin Bufflin. Uh, but if they can somehow... You know, continue. They still got Josh Morrissey. 
Uh, Derek Forbord has been a nice surprise. Neil Pionk has done pretty well coming over from the Rangers. If they can find one or two more D, I actually really like their chances for not only making the playoffs, but for doing some damage. So I like what Kevin Chevrolet has done. I think this is excellent for him. I think Yarmo Kikalana, this is truly one of those rare times where I could look at both teams and say they both got better with this trade. Brian, let's move on to a couple of things before we let you go. Our guest is Brian Lawton from the NHL Network. And early on in the season, when you look at some of the storylines, one of them that really got my attention was the Washington Capitals and the quarantining and the players not being in, I guess, in lockstep with the protocols. And you look at Ovechkin, and it was it was all Russian guys. And you look at Ovechkin's wife, who went off on Instagram on the NHL for kind of pointing the finger and not really giving the players the benefit of the doubt and that it was, oh, yeah, they caught it because they went into each other's hotel rooms. It wasn't because they played in a game or had dinner together or were in lounges together, et cetera, et cetera. What do you make of the situation in Washington? And those guys, the four guys, I think it's four of them, but big names are going to be out of the lineup for a little bit. Yeah, it's a tough blow. And obviously, Mrs. Ovechkin doesn't feel that good about it. She made that known quite clearly. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly her right. I can tell you, I was going, I was in work yesterday and about one minute from going on air. And I was asked to leave the building in 20 seconds. It's not a great feeling. I don't have COVID. Um, but I was contact traced to somebody that did. And let me tell you, it is a very, very uncomfortable feeling. So I can understand why the players are so upset. I can understand, you know, a lot of things that transpired there. Uh, But at the end of the day, like I did, you pick up your stuff and you leave the building. And that's it. It's a serious deal. I'm not overly concerned for the athletes. not overly concerned for myself either, for that matter. But you have to respect what's going on in both countries. You have to take it at the highest level. There's just no other way to look at it. And it doesn't matter. Uh, You know, I know I I read Alex's tweet. It was, I'm not sure what it was. He was sorry that he was hanging out with his teammates away from the rink. Yeah, okay. That's not really the point. The point is you got to follow the rules, period. The NHL has gone to great lengths to get this game back and playing. And there is no messing around with it. I love the fact that the one thing that players always want to know are what are the boundaries. We don't care. The NHL doesn't care if you're a superstar in the National Hockey League or if you're on the taxi squad. you got to follow the protocol, period. End of story. It feels harsh. There's a lot of people upset in Washington. It is what it is. And trust me, I got the feeling yesterday it's not a nice feeling. Uh, you feel like you've done something wrong. you got to just follow the protocol. And speaking of which, Dallas played their first game last night, and it was it was one of those cases of the horses couldn't wait to get out of the barn. They just destroyed Nashville 7-0. Their entire team basically tested positive. What did you think of that game last night, and what do you think of them overall after making the Stanley Cup final? It was an incredible start for them. 
you know, and there was a lot of uh, interest in how the Dallas Stars would perform, having gone through what they've gone through, having games postponed, waiting this long to start. And I think we got a pretty good answer. They got a lot of really talented players on that hockey team. They've got some good forwards. Joe Pabowski, who did not have a great regular season last year, is can maintain even just a fraction of how he started last night. Look out. Dallas Stars will be a force again to reckon with. We just kind of forgot about them because they've been on the sidelines. Obviously, you hit the nail right on the head, Joey. They couldn't wait to get out of the bar because they looked like they were shot out of a cannon in that game. I don't know what happened to Nashville, uh, but good for the Dallas Stars. They look tremendous. If Rupe Hintz can elevate his game, if Dennis Gurionov could have a you know strong season if Radulov is back to the player he is. Um, look out for the Dallas Stars. They don't even have Ben Bishop again. I don't think it's going to matter. Not with that decor. If they got everybody healthy back there, they're an elite team in the NHL. It was not a fluke that they made it to the finals last year. Brian, before we let you go, we got about a minute here. What do you think about the North Division as a whole? People had the Leafs, of course, in Toronto especially, as being the best team in the division. But Montreal's gotten off to a very strong start. And there are other teams that have now, in Winnipeg being the one, making improvements. How do you think the North Division shakes out? I think that it has been absolutely freaking incredible for hockey, for hockey in Canada even. Uh, there's uh, everywhere though. There is a ton of interest in the North Division, even all throughout America. I can't tell you the coaches that I've talked to in that division that they got their hands full this year. They're used to getting a lot of attention playing in Canada, but now playing just against other Canadian teams every game, it's insane. But most of the guys are really having fun with it, and I'm getting that same vibe from the players. It's a, it's a lot of heightened awareness. Uh, but this is what guys do for a living. They accept it. Most of them are comfortable with it. Uh, it is doing nothing to hurt the sport. That's for sure. I only wish there was some way we could keep it going after this year because I really, truly think it's been that groundbreaking. The three-time zone thing, that's tough. But, you know, when you change the schedule the way we have, I think it's manageable. Even with 56 games in 110 days, which is completely unheard of in this league. I still think it's manageable. It is going to be a ton of fun to see what happens. Lots, thanks a lot for doing this. We always appreciate your time. Say hi to your family. Take care of yourself, and I hope the the tracing proves to be a wild goose chase. Thank you, Joey. I appreciate that. We'll talk to you soon. That is Brian Lawton, NHL Network Analyst, at Brian Lawton 9 on Twitter. We're going to take the break and come back with a kind of bizarre story about Canadian basketball. I, I almost think it borders on extortion. And I think that these global bodies, these sports bodies, a lot of them are extortionists. We're going to get into it with the president and CEO of Canadian basketball when we return here on the Joey Vendetta Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Don't forget, if you missed any of it, you can download it wherever you get your favorite podcast or even some of your not-so-favorite podcasts. Whether it's Google, whether it's Apple, you can listen on Spotify. You can listen anywhere on the Sportsnet app. 
just say the Joey Vendetta show into your brilliant speaker. It's got to be more than smart if it's thrown down this program. And if you can't tell I'm being facetious, then that's your problem. It is my pleasure to welcome to the program the CEO of Canada Basketball, former NBA executive for the Raptors and the Knicks, Glenn Grunwald. Glenn, thank you very much for doing this. How are you today? Well, I'm doing very good. And you? I'm doing okay. You know, I think it's yeah. kind of like everyone else. We're all we're all treading water and trying to find some diversion in our daily lives to let us not think about the thing that has been preoccupying most of people's existence over the last year. But you've got some other things that you have to deal with, and I kind of want to get into those. And I have to ask you, before, before I ask you, I have, to, I have to set this up. I've always had this kind of predilection about FIFA and the IOC and the IIHF and FIBA and anybody else that has any sort of governing body authority over amateur sport. Because my perception is it's a lot of rich dudes in Switzerland staying in nice hotels, getting paid a lot of money to, I don't really know, do what. So that's, that's kind of a general perception I have of these organizations. And when I saw this story, I was stunned because... Not because they did this, but because to me, when I read it and I understand what it was, it just smacks the word extortion comes to my mouth and my mind. And it may not be the case, but that's just my visceral reaction. So I'd like you to either set me straight or tell me your version of the events that got Canada basketball fined $227,138 for not showing up to an America Cup qualifier in November in the midst of a pandemic. Well, you 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 don't uh, your concerns are not, are shared by a lot of people, and and you know I'm going to try and take the high road here and be positive and, and say that uh, you know maybe there was a, a miscommunication or there may be a misunderstanding on their part, but uh, you know we. We, as uh, the the national governing body for for basketball in Canada, are a member of FIBA, which is the international governing body for basketball, and they they stage the various tournaments. And there's really, you know, three main championships that we work towards: our continental championship. So, in this case, it's the championship of the Americas. It's called the America Cup. And then there's the World Cup, which is the World Championship, and then the Olympics. So we're in the first phase of the Olympic cycle called the AmeriCup qualifiers, and we were scheduled to play three sets of two games each. We played the Dominican Republic and split those last February, right before the uh, uh, pandemic really hit. And then we were supposed to play Virgin Islands and Cuba down in Dominican Republic uh, in, in November. Uh, and, and we missed that game. We couldn't play because our medical advice was that it wasn't safe at the time, and and the nature of the protocols, we just couldn't ensure the, the safety of our of our players and staff. So we we left it with FIBA. I thought that uh, we would work towards you know getting the protocols around better and f- more firmly established, uh, and maybe we could make up those two games from November in the next window, which is this coming February. So. 
So we were under the impression, and we FIBA had it on its schedule, that we were going to play two games against the, uh, against the Virgin Islands and two games against uh, 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 the Cuba uh, in February. And we're working towards it. And we haven't really uh, made the final decision whether it's safe or not, but I thought we were making progress, and our doctor was – was impressed with some of the things that uh, that FIBA has done and improved some things. But then, you know, we, we had this disciplinary proceeding, which I was told by the president of FIBA Americas, that was more a formality, just to confirm that, in fact, the reason we didn't play uh, was because uh, it was for medical reasons, which it was. And so, okay, fine. And then, so we're working diligently and in good faith trying to play in February. And then we get this uh, decision that we're being fined with the strong arm tactic that we have to, we can get the fine reduced if we go ahead and play, which, you know, I was disappointed in that tactic and, and, and thought it was unfair. So How Glenn, was that I have long to... explanation? Was, was that understandable no. at all? <laughs> no, but you're good. You know what the great thing is? You're going to make a great litigator at some point in your life. So it's perfect. <laughs> so I, I have to, when I look at the FIBA organization and you go on the website and you look at the, the organization, which you look at the structure and it's got a Congress, a central board, an executive committee, a president, a secretary general, a management team and judicial and other bodies and then commissions it sounds like it's very overwrought and one of those organizations that has a lot of people that if I ran it, I would ask exactly what do you do and how much are we paying you? So I have to, it sounds like you kind of agree with me. How is this communicated to you and what are the channels that you respond through and how much bureaucracy is involved in this process? Well, well, we were also disappointed that, that no one called us or advised us or even sent an email uh, prior to them issuing a press release and posting it on their website. Uh, so there's a lot of people there. Uh, but, you know, uh, like any organization, it's, uh, you know, it probably has maybe, uh, you know, communication issues. That's one of the key things that a good organization has. Uh, and and maybe they, they had their wires crossed or something like that. So I'm trying to give a benefit of the doubt. And so, uh, yeah, they're, they're a, a big organization, and there's, I don't know how many hundreds of, uh, of federations belonging to them. So uh, national federations belonging to the international federation. So it's a big organization, and they're, and they're busy, and they're staging a lot of games and stuff like that, and I'm sure they're, they're very busy trying to get everything organized and, and run. So, Okay, Nick Nurse, who's your coach, said that he had, a, he had a reaction that he said was twofold. First of all, he says, I back the decision by Canada basketball to do what they did. It was all about player safety for us. We just didn't feel like we could execute it as safe as we wanted at that point, which I think is understandable. And then he said on the other side of the coin, it's disappointing that FIBA finds us and docks a point. I think it's unique times that maybe call for some unique situations. So FIBA announced Wednesday that you get fined 160,000 Swiss francs. And to me, again, I'm always skeptical when the fine is in Swiss francs. And just call me a skeptic, okay? And, and so what do you make of Nick's comments? You know, I know you communicate with Nick. What has that communication been like? 
And what are you going to do moving forward? What recourse do you have? Well, Nick was actually the first person that I was aware of that spotted it. I don't know how he came across it, but uh, uh, he he saw it and said, is this true? And I, I hadn't heard anything yet. So, so uh, yeah, so so Nick, you know, I basically I agree with Nick. You know, we, we you know, we're trying to do the right thing. We're, we want to play the games, but they, it has to be safe. That's got to be the first priority. And, and uh, you know, again, we're trying to work cooperatively and, and being good partners with FIBA. We have a lot of, you know, different activities with them. So it's not like this is the one thing that we're doing. And, and uh, you know, it's a very uh, uh, close relationship. And we, like we was, I said, we were having a lot of conversations trying to solve the problems. And so th- this kind of struck me as a surprise and as unfair. Glenn, what do you make of the progress in Canadian basketball in terms of the number of elite players that this country is now turning out? Now, we know the Carter effect has – there's a documentary with that title. But we know that Vince Carter was responsible for many players bouncing a ball for the first time. And – you were involved with the Raptors for many years and you were involved with the Knicks, but you've seen this country grow its indigenous game and the players that are from this country in a manner where now Canada is the number two producer of NBA talent. So give me your kind of overview of where Canadian basketball has come from and where it is today. Yeah, well, I came with the Raptors in 1994. I was one of the first employees, and uh, and and I think it's it's, to my, in my opinion, basketball has been pretty well established in Canada well before the Raptors arrived. Like we're going to have the 100th anniversary of Canada basketball in 2023. So uh, and and it's been played in the school systems, and we've had international teams and a lot of good players from from Leo Routens to. Uh, Eli Pasquale to, you know, a lot of good players. And uh, we haven't uh, won medals in Olympic competition since 1936, but that's our goal, uh, to get back to the podium. But what we've seen that the Raptors did has been a real catalyst to really take what is a a very good established uh, sport and really launch it into a high profile, something that all the kids want to do. And and its growth has been astronomical. Uh, so uh, you know we're the we're the most popular sport amongst kids. Uh, we're the most played sport amongst girls, 12 to 17. We're the most popular sport amongst newcomers, and to me, what that 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 is 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 a great opportunity to get you know that pipeline uh, uh, at the beginning of the funnel, and just more people playing with better coaching and with more opportunities to compete against the best. That's when you start seeing uh, that happen. And then, as you mentioned, the role models. You see kids that uh, have that know people are from their community that have succeeded in the NBA or the WNBA, and that gives them the motivation and the belief that they can do it too. So I think it's those two things, and it's, it's really exciting to be part of basketball in Canada these days. Before I let you go, one final question. Have you paid the fine yet? And if you don't, are you worried that some Swiss dude in a trench coat is going to show up on your doorstep looking for money? <laughs> no, we haven't paid it yet. Well, we're we're actually uh, planning on appealing it, and so uh, you know, 
but hopefully we can find a solution, like I said. And uh, you know, that's a, a great thing about Canada. Like the Canadian sport community has really worked well together from different sports. Uh, there's a return to play task force that's been sponsored by Own the Podium, which is a very important organization in Canada where we're all working together to to see what's worked in other sports and how they're doing it so so kids and teams can safely play. Uh, the COC, the Canadian Olympic Committee, has been awesome in their support and, and their leadership. So, you know, I'm I'm confident that we're going to get through this okay. But it, like I said, again, it's, it's a bit disappointing that we're, we're having to go through this. Uh, last thing before I let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the Olympics and what are your thoughts on the Olympics and going forward for next year we're, we're hearing that they're gonna they're gonna get played we're hearing that there's been a report that they're gonna get canceled and i think that report was out of china and it was one journalist but then it kind of took on a life of its own where are we as far as the communication that you're getting internationally on the status of the olympics yes well uh you know coc the canadian olympic committee yes. is our lead on that and, and they've been a very uh, c- uh much in communication and uh and and involved so the latest uh you know response from the coc was that you know it's going to go in, in all likelihood you know that uh, they've been working very hard on different formats and the question may is more likely how how will fans be involved whether they'll be allowed uh, to travel to Japan and attend the events or not. I think that's more the, the issue. But as far as I know, they've been working on sort of an NBA bubble format in the worst case. And uh, hopefully by the time, you know, June, July and August roll around, there'll be more fans in the stands. But, but we've been told to prepare. Our women have already qualified. They're, they're the fourth ranked in the world and are definitely a medal potential. And our men are still planning on hosting the Olympic qualifying tournament in Victoria this summer, June 29th to, to July, July 4th. So we'll, we're, we're all guns blazing towards the Olympics, and uh, hopefully we'll get both teams in there. And by the way, three-on-three basketball is an uh, Olympic sport this year, and we have a men's team that's uh, in the Olympic qualifying tournament for that too, in, I believe, in, in June. Glenn, thanks for taking the time to be on the program. It's greatly appreciated. Take care of yourself and continued success with the Canadian program, and good luck with the appeal. Thanks for your support. I really appreciate it. Nice talking to you. Yeah, Glenn Grunwald, president and CEO of Canada Basketball. And as you heard, the fine was in Swiss francs, 160,000 of them. You can buy a lot of chocolate with that. We're going to take the break, come back, and finish up with your texts. And some thoughts on the passing of Hank Aaron and also Larry King and how maybe you should value people, maybe not value, but tell them and maybe pay tribute to them before they die. Because the tributes after these people pass away seem to me to be greater than the ones that when they're alive. We'll do that when we return on the Joey Vendetta Show here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. When I got off my flight after doing my physical, we signed uh, George Springer, and it was just, you know, that's like one of those things. It's like, yeah, now, you, you know, you just, you always want to go to a team that you know that they're going to do what they, everything they can to win. And, um, you know, it, and that's, that's what we got going on in Seattle right now. And I'm very, very blessed to be a part of it. That is Kirby Yates, one of the new Toronto Blue Jays, being excited that they got George Springer. 
and almost got Michael Brantley, but almost counts in horseshoes and grenades, as the saying goes. Time to wrap up the Joey Mendetta show here. And look, the Springer signing, as Tim Kirchin said earlier, takes the Jays into a stratosphere that the rest of Major League Baseball now notices. If George Springer was willing to sign, and I say willing semi-facetiously, because for $150 bucks, I'd be willing to do a lot of different things. Most of them I can't say. But now that the Blue Jays have George Springer, and we've been taking your texts at 590-590 on who won the trade between the Columbus Blue Jackets and the Winnipeg Jets featuring Dubois and Line. We've also been taking your text on what you think of the Toronto Blue Jays signing George Springer and some of the other moves and what do they need to do next. So let's get to some of your texts and tweets and also talk about Hank Aaron passing away at the age of 86 yesterday and losing Larry King today. So we get to some of the texts here from Liberato in Scarborough. Said, read the article today in the Star, that's the Toronto Star for those of you in other parts of the world, about Henry Aaron was well aware of his accomplishments, was not aware of how horribly he was treated by his own fans at his home park when he eclipsed the Babe's home run record. Yeah, Henry Aaron endured horrible hatred for his entire career. He played in the Negro Leagues, and then went to Major League Baseball. And it was, I can't even imagine having to live with that every day. And you wonder why black people deal with Black Lives Matter and have the, I guess, the the anxiety of worrying about how they're going to be treated if they ever get pulled over because of the numerous times that something's gone awry. And imagine being black in the early 1900s and being a prominent at that's it's it's hard enough to just be a regular human being imagine being an athlete who's going to break the record of a white baseball player who was revered as a legend not easy and we have a text from the 519 he's texted us several times but i can't read the name but i'm still going to I'm still going to read this because it's a great text. Joey, just a personal thought. When I was a kid in Ottawa, Canada, I had no idea there were different races, different cultures. It was a fuzzy, sweet, white bread community. When I got older and fell in love with baseball, I realized that there was this man, Henry Aaron, who was beyond belief and talent. I just loved how he hit a fastball. Slowly, I began to hear about all the miserable obstacles he went through to become a player and eventually an icon. As a kid, I was bullied because I was skinny and not athletic. However, my situation was nothing close to what he went through. I watched when he broke Babe Ruth's record. I felt good inside for him, but more for everyone who may have risen above those typecasts that you, at a glance. Mr. Aaron, you are a hero. Excellent text. Dan from Georgetown. I was born in 1969, and I can't believe our society treated people like this. Oh, yeah, they did. And more. It's, it's It shows you how deep you have to dig to achieve things sometimes. And Henry Aaron, forget the home runs. As Tim Kirchin said before, if you take away his home runs, he still had over 3,000 hits. And he was an outstanding fielder. He did everything. 
The guy was a superstar. I don't think anybody, and you, you hear Mike Trout, he's the best base, and he is. Mike Trout's a great baseball player. Henry Aaron, his ability in today's game, you forward it, and what he did, you can't do what he did anymore. It's that simple. Now things were different. Times were different. But you just have to stop and think about what he did. And the same thing with Larry King. Larry King invented the cable news interview. Now, I don't know that he did it on purpose. His real name was Lawrence Harvey Zeiger, and he started as a local journalist in Florida. And then the Larry King Show, which was an all-night nationwide call-in radio program, was where he really made his name. And then he got the TV show. And he was the guy. Larry King Live was it. Nobody could touch the guy. And he was he influenced elections. It doesn't happen anymore from one person. You can't do it anymore in the age we live in. That's why what these people did was so impressive. Manuela from Montreal. Hi, sorry for the delay. The point of the trade for me is going to be coaching. Pierre-Luc Dubois and Patrick Liney have a lot to show now that they got their trade wish. However, the coaches will have the bigger spotlight on how this translates into time on ice. Personally, I think the Jets got the win simply because Paul Maurice will manage the player better. It's going to be interesting to see. That's for sure. Hello, Joey. Tony from the Hammer. I'm really sad when we lost Henry Aaron, Larry King, and Tommy Lasorda a couple of weeks ago. Thank you for breaking the news of George Springer. Well, I was second. I just confirmed it. Coming to the Blue Jays, but we need more starting pitchers. If not Bauer, perhaps Odorizzi or Tanaka. I agree. Everybody agrees. I think that's the one theme we're getting is everybody wants more pitching. We get a text from, let's see here, David in the six. What makes Tiger the greatest to me is the fact that he was pummeling the competition and arguably the hardest sport to play on earth while having all the sexual distractions. We were talking about the HBO Tiger Woods documentary that I got to watch and I don't know that you find out anything new, but I think it just sheds a whole new light on the guy. Daryl in Oshawa, great interview. Shining a light on racism and showing the human effects is always worthwhile. Springer deal is huge. We'll look tough at the end. Winterpeg wins the deal. I'm drinking Corona. Eloise from Kitchener. Jets got hosed. Winnipeg should have got at least a first-round pick and a prospect on top in the deal. Columbus throwing in a third was a joke. It's hard to find a 40-goal scorer than a big center. Allie in Calgary. Hey, Joey, the Good Deeds Cup is a great thing, and in my opinion, all minor sports organizations should implement similar initiatives. Besides other sports, my kids are involved in 4-H, and in order to complete the year, they complete at least one volunteer charity project. It's amazing to see how the kids feel after they've helped someone in need. It would make for a much better society. Boy, you ain't kidding. Jamie from Belleville. Great moves, Blue Jays. Still need another quality pitcher. Would like to get Paxton or somebody else. Matt and Cochran think they both lost. Can't see either able to keep Line or Dubois. Talking about the trade. That about does it for the program. Don't forget, download the podcast. And, of course, incredible gratitude to Andrew Holland and Mark Boffo, who do a great job helping to put the show together. And just as importantly, incredible gratitude to you for listening and for being involved on the texts and, of course, downloading the podcast. Thank you very much for being here. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. 
And as I like to say, try to be better tomorrow than you were today.